So you made the venture north, like so many duck and goose hunters do. You, but you do it a little bit different at this stage in your life. You don't go for a you know a seven or ten day trip like most Americans plan for. You went for forty five days, leaving in early September, stopping along the way. Give me a little bit about what you did. You stopped and fished, and then you got up and you got your decoy tra- and your trailers all organized in Alberta, and then you went to work. Tell me a little bit about that trip. Sure, that's uh, pretty much it. Usually about the middle of September we take off, and uh, uh, my girlfriend Kate and I, and <clears throat> we this time we were. We were heading, going straight through to Alberta, and uh, people we stay with, the farmers we stay with up there, sent us a, texted us a picture of the snow on the ground, and I, and it was 65 degrees and beautiful in Montana, so I looked at Kate and said, let's stay here and fish for a few days until that snow melts, and so we did. We fished the Beaverhead and the Missouri and had a big time, and, and then the snow melted, and we went up there, and uh, uh, we have a, a f- wonderful family farm that we stay on. Uh, uh, Danny and Shannon Rizika and their three kids and and they're just the best people in the world and they let us occupy a little corner of their world and uh, um, so you know we take the trailer with us we got all our stuff and just start scouting and and uh, you know try to hunt every day if I can but for sure six days a week and was it something to where when when you got up there was there any rude awakenings once you got into the cropland or the farmland of Alberta meaning was it on time was the farm on time with the farming and the was the harvest on time what it looked like it it looked tough this year um for the farmers they had had a, a dry summer pretty much almost drought like conditions and then about the 13th of September it started to rain and it rained and rained and rained and rained and, rained and there was crop on the ground the 13th of October that was laying there the 13th of September because it would rain, start to dry out, then they'd get a little snow or some more rain. And, and I mean, the snowstorms weren't, you know, a foot or anything. They're just two or three, four inches, and they'd be gone in two days. But when it's laying on crop, laying on the ground, all that stuff has to dry out before you can pick it up. So it was, they started out really good. We're ahead of the curve. And then the guys that didn't get all their stuff off early were, were scrambling at the end of October to get it off. Yeah, because I heard that, you know, it's on the ground and it doesn't matter if it's peas or they swath some barley or whatever it is. Those swaths are laying on the ground in Canada. And some of these farmers were experiencing two or three snowfalls, a couple freezes, and they couldn't get the, and then the ground would thaw out and it would get too wet to get the combines in there for the harvest. So yeah, you're right. Like the middle of October, October 12th, 13th, there was still a lot of crop on the ground. There was. And what they need are the perfect days for duck hunting. You know, they need totally clear sunny windy days and those are the days you kill the birds up there too yeah Yeah, so it's amazing another correlation between farming and duck hunting of Mm -hmm. sunshine helps dry it out the wind helps dry it out and they can get their their big i mean those combines are not light they can't put them in there when it's moist so so you you when you go up there though it's quite the undertaking to you know to travel that far and and to go um you know stage for that long and to have you know live remotely like that Mm -hmm. and all of it all of that is built on pretty much the passion of duck hunting i mean i know you have friends up there i know that there's a a chance to throw a fly or two on the riverbed on the way up there but the main reason that you go up there is because of ducks no doubt about it and snow geese and canadas and lessers and everything else that that part of alberta has to offer what 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 is it like dave now at this stage in your life driving up there is the anticipation still insane is as you start to see august disappear in those 90 degree temperatures and where we live down here in the western part of the united states 
is the anticipation there to where when you finally close that door on that Ford truck, and I want to get to why you drive a Ford in a second, but that Ford truck, that door closes, Kate th- c- closes her door. Now you're northbound. What's the feeling like in your brain and your body? It's, you know, I'm a, I'm a little calmer than I used to be. So I can usually get through Nevada and Idaho before I get, get too wound up about it. But, you know, Kate likes to take two or three days to get up there because it's, you know, it's a long trip. I mean, it's 1,400 and some miles and it takes 24 hours basically. Um, but I'll get to where I'm thinking as I'm driving through Montana. And if I just drive straight through, I'll be there at first light and I can go scouting in the morning, which is, you know, I'm going to be there for 50 days. What does it matter? But, but that's the way it is. I mean, you know, I just, uh, yeah, it's, I'm still once the closer I get to that Canadian border and, and to that part of Alberta, the, the anticipation and excitement, you know, comes back like it always has. I mean, it's just, it's a new beginning every year. That's where I get to start the season. Every so year. you're telling me legitimately that you haven't lost one bit. I know you said you're a little bit calmer, but that doesn't mean that you still don't aren't ecstatic about the deal. You haven't lost one bit of that when you're driving in those roads and you start seeing your first barley or oats or peas or whatever the crop is, and you see a, a grind going on. It still does the same thing it did right now in 2018 as it did in 1985? It does. It does. Um and it's one of those things where when I see that and I'm still 150 miles from where I'm going, I'm thinking, I wonder if I stopped and asked that farmer if he'd let me cut. <laughs> take a, take a couple. I have, I have actually done that before on the way there. But um, it, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it just doesn't go away. You know, you, um, you, hunt with, you hunt with other people like that, and I do too. You're one of them. And it's just one of those deals that it's, it's what you do. I mean, it's... Do you get the same exact feeling... When you are on a dirt road in the the Nevada mountains on a sheep hunt, an elk hunt, a mule deer hunt, an antelope hunt, a goat hunt, a chucker hunt, um, I know that you've done it all. Archery, rifle, you've done it all. Do you get that same exact feeling uh, and that jubilation of it's getting ready to go down? Duck season is here. Do you get the same when it's sheep season or deer season? I No. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I don't. I mean, that's it's different with waterfowl for me. But I, you know... We, like anyone, I when it's the heart of fly fishing season and the fishing's great and I'm enjoying that at the moment as much as I can enjoy it. And when I go archery hunting, the same thing happens. You know, um, I'm, I'm into the moment and that's great. But if I honestly look at it, um, no, nothing, nothing gets me wound up like hunting waterfowl. Why do you think it is? What, you've had to have developed a theory in your mind why this... It, 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 it gets to the point to where it ruins your life in a lot of ways because oh, you don't, yeah. you really lose a lot of love for other things besides your friends and family. Sure. Why is that? Well, you know, first of all, you have to make sure you do it with your friends and family. So that is inclusive. But I honestly think what it is about that, Chad, is um, it's such a visual sport. You know, so much of big game hunting is spotting and you know you're sitting there on a mountainside at least in the west it is you know looking for the game and when you find them it's really exciting and everything but but it's a small portion of those type of hunts are visual you know duck hunting is all visual i mean you see the birds way out there you see them close um you see them working in those decoys and i mean that's why you set up 500 decoys that morning whether you're by yourself or with three of your friends it doesn't matter um it just i like the part of it that you're always engaged you know it's there's no sneaking around or whatever. I mean, it's happening right in front of you. And and I think that that could, you know, when I've seen some really cool turkeys come in and they get all fanned out and gobbling their heads off and bull elk coming in um, to 
sure you know to an archery stand that you know bugling their heads off and that that's cool and it might happen once or twice or three times on a hunt maybe you go out on an elk hunt in new mexico or nevada or idaho utah wherever you're going you might get a couple encounters in a seven day period if it's really strong you might get more you take that and you multiply it by 10, 20 times a day when it's on, on a good duck hunt. And and when you're doing it the way that you do it in Alberta and the way that several people do up there, there's not a lot of water hunting up there. It's a lot of dry field, a lot of dry grain hunting. You can get a lot of power in a 90-minute period as those ducks leave a roost, right? Crazy. I mean, the we had, you know, we're lucky enough this year, <clears throat> even though, and, and we'll talk about that some, the hatches weren't the best for some of the species, but but there were plenty of birds up there, and, and I was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time with permission, you know, to um, to experience some of those grinds that just, the ducks just never stop, you know. My brother came up and hunted with me for the first time this year, and he stayed for a week, and we had a blast. And, and Alan's as good a hunter as I've ever met, and, and uh, you know, starts hunting the day the season opens and quits hunting the day it closes and, and hunts every day in between. I mean, he's one of the few people that really does hunt every day. Um, and he was, he looked at me one afternoon, we were laying in some oat swaths, shooting ducks so close. We were, you know, you could shoot their head off if you just took your time. And he looked over at me, he goes, that's the best duck hunt I've ever been on in my life. <laughs> this guy has killed thousands and thousands of birds, you know, over the last 49 years, I think is how long he's been hunting. And, um, you know, he, he's been there, done that. And he just looked at me and I go, yeah, man, that's why you come to Canada. I mean, it's not that you don't see it. You and I've seen it in places like Idaho, you know, when it's, when it's right, but it's not an uncommon occurrence. I mean, it's unusual if you don't see it every week and, you know, in Canada and in late September and October. I mean, it's just crazy. It is. And, 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 and until this year, um, you know, I hunted with you in Alberta a few times and I brought Hunter McLemore, the son of Mike McLemore, you know, mm-hmm. the awesome duck call maker from back in the day <clears throat> and hunter works with us at banded and i i was talking to him one evening about duck hunting theories and ideologies and i always had it in my head dave that this dry land hunting is so easy it's like you put out your spinners and you lay in your lay down blinds and now it's a lot of panel blinds and the way that we can hide these panel blinds if you're if you're crafty you can really hide them whether it's an edge or you get out in the middle and build your own bush if you have the time and the manpower to do it and he set me straight. He goes, no, it's not. He goes, you'd be in flooded timber. They'll come. They'll cut. You could be wearing pink and red and doing jumping jacks on the right sunny day. And they're landing at your feet. You could be anywhere in the country in the lower 48 or go to Argentina or anywhere. All different formats of duck hunting have something different to offer. And he says, it's not easy. He says, you've got to scout. You got to be where the birds want to be, or at least in between them and the X, the roost and the X. And then you got to really hide. He says hiding up here is big time because you, you, if you're not digging and the, every, all of those crops are low cut in a lot of instances, unless like this year you had some swaths, but a lot of the stuff we were doing was with panel blinds. He says, you still have to get crafty. You have to trick them. You have to be on the, on the you know, on your A game, as far as your calling and your presentation to him and when to call the shot and when not, he goes, what about when they come in and there's 30 of them landing the decoys, but you got another hundred, like you were doing today, Chad, and you were making us wait for those hundred. He goes, how did you know that you were going to be able to finish the hundred? He goes, you still got to be on your game to be able to do that. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that it's way easier to kill mallard ducks over a dry field than it is over a traditional water hunt, whether it's flooded timber, a marsh, a river, an oxbow, whatever. Um, I think, I think the reason the perception is it's easier is because you get so many more chances. Um, you know, when you have ducks coming in 30 or 100 or 500 at a time, 
your opportunity is going to be pretty good. You know, when you're hunting in a marsh here in Nevada, I mean, it, it really is rare to have a, a flock of more than 10 or 15 birds of any kind to come in, you know, whether they be canvas backs or blue wing or, or rather green wing teal or mallards, whatever, you know, you just don't have the big flock. So I think part of it is that is the numbers. But this year, as I said, the hunting was tougher than it's, than I've ever seen it in Canada, and and that's relative. Okay, it was still fantastic hunting, you know. But there were there were days when the birds came in onesies and twosies and threesies, and you know that's actually a really enjoyable day. You don't get to see the big numbers work, but there's going to be enough of them. You're going to get some shooting, kill a few ducks, and and you know maybe a few specks or whatever. And and um, but but I don't think it's I don't think it's easier. Um, I think it's there's more opportunity. You know, I think there's just more ducks feeding in a grain field than there are feeding in a marsh on most days. So the other side of the argument is the failure rate on a dry land hunt in Canada or Dakotas or Western Minnesota mm-hmm. or Kansas. There's so I mean, you can go to Montana, Wyoming, sure. Washington, Oregon, Idaho. <laughs> I mean, we killed them in dry corn and found in Nevada. Sure. Um, you're this the failure rate. OK, is there people failing at it where they go into these dry field situations and they put out what they think is going to work for them. Like, this is my picture I'm painting today. Here's what I got. Here's my full body geese, a few full body mallards, a mojo or two spinning wings, maybe on remote in case a group of geese come turn off their wings. Our height is going to be this. Are people failing at it that you know of, or is the success rate way higher? I I do see people up there. There's a lot of um, freelancers like myself in um, that part of Alberta because it's not oh so far from the Canadian or from the U.S. border. Um, But, you know, I talk to those guys. I see them in the only two restaurants in town, so you're going to run into them and and, uh, and other places. I see them out in the field, and, and typically I think it's the hide. I mean, I think people think... If there's so many birds, it doesn't matter. You can just lay out there in the field, you know, and, and they'll come. You put a couple decoys around you. Um, and, and so that's, that's the biggest, I think that's the biggest reason. And, and I'll tell you, cloudy days, like anywhere, there it's hard to kill ducks on cloudy days Very when hard. you're laying in four inches of wheat stubble. They see you. There, there's no way they don't see you. And if you've got a layout blind that's the same color as the wheat stubble, that helps a lot. But... You know, all our killer weed and everything, every weed feels a little different in color, and so none of them match perfectly. And uh, but, but it's close. It's a lot better than it used to be when you had to go out there an extra hour early every morning and stuff your blind, you know, mm-hmm. with the stuff from the field. And so um, it, uh, that, that's really where I see the most people fail. Um, I don't think... I put out a lot of decoys in Canada. I put out a lot of decoys at wherever I hunt. That's why I bought them. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't bother me to spend that time putting them out because you can, you learn as you do it for a long time. You can, a lot of days you can manipulate how those birds come to you, you know, and you can make them do things they wouldn't normally do by the way you set your decoys up. If you're on the X, if you're where they want to be. And one of the most successful things that happens, particularly when I get cloudy days, one of the most successful things I do, I find is instead of, being with the wind at your back at the you know in the hole of the decoy spread is to side shoot them you know you get on the side of the the j or the u or whatever shape you make it doesn't matter and so they're not looking at you when they're coming in they're looking at the big mass and you're not laying in the big mass of decoys you're laying in a bunch of snow geese and whites you know just a little pot of snow geese off to the side that you you commonly see in canada and um uh and that on those cloudy days i mean that that improves your success 
threefold probably, maybe more than that, you know, just because they're not looking at you so they don't see you. But if you're in the back of that decoy, you know, if you're in the back of the kill hole, they're going to see you every time. And as they approach and they start to set up and they're kind of riding that wind and putting, letting their air out and putting their feet down, they got all the time in the world to be looking for something wrong. And they're always looking for the boogeyman. Right. When you talk about the boogeyman and you talk about, you know, what you're saying, that's a great idea of, of side shooting them and getting on the side of them to where all those visual, all those eyeballs aren't on you. Because you take, a, I'm not really good at math, I've admitted that, but you got a hundred ducks with two eyes each, that's a lot of eyeballs on you. You know what I mean? And that's <laughs> yeah. the, the chances of them spotting you, the odds increase. So sure. what about the forgetfulness of a wild duck or a wild goose? Now, <clears throat> I know that I've heard on some big game that they're very forgetful. Like you might shoot at them and they might forget it by the next hour, the next day, and they might make a mistake again. How forgetful is our waterfowl species? Now, what I mean is that you just said yourself, sometimes you have the experience of shooting into groups of 200 to 300 birds, 500 birds at a time on some instances. Those birds that don't get killed in that volley when you call the shot, which a lot of times I don't, and I know you don't either because you right. don't want to educate those masses, but let's say it's just 50 birds and you kill six or seven of them out of the flock. How educated are those 43 birds now for the rest of the season all the way down to Texas, and are they forgetful? Yeah. I, what makes them forgetful is hunger. I mean, seriously, that's what makes them forgetful. <laughs> they, they're... they're um, need to eat is stronger than anything i think that 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 makes them make bad decisions um uh you though i would say the one exception to that is snow geese and you're hunting those old snow geese and it is just hard and it was that way this year you know you'd see a flock of 80 snow geese in a field there'd be three of them that were gray you know that's not good odds for us right you know you want 65 of them to be gray yeah. <laughs> so it uh those old snow geese are they, they come in high, and, and again, snow geese don't work like Canada geese and, and speckle bellies, which, which work horizontally, right? Snow geese work vertically. They come in and circle above you, and if they decide to come in, they come straight down, you yeah. know, uh, most of the time. Not always, but most of the time, particularly in big flocks they do. And uh, they get up there above you at 55 or 60 yards, and a lot of people shoot at them at that distance. I don't, you know, um, but they're picking you apart and then they the first one bails and every one of them bail and they're gone you know and and they'll do that again and again and again um and i think that's has been proven when they started the conservation orders you know around the country and in canada when they shot all these banded snow geese finding out these birds were 13 14 15 years old lots of them lots of them yeah i mean an amazing number of of old old geese you know, that, that explains that phenomenon. As far as the regular, you know, I think ducks are less sensitive to hunting pressure than, than geese are. Um, uh, and, and I don't, you know, I think they just, they got to eat, you know, and they're going to come in there to eat. And, and if they don't come in, and, and that's the weird thing about Canada. You would think if a duck has been shot at before and it comes into a field and it sees decoys or sees something that spooks it, you'll see the bunch spook, Right. And they'll swing a quarter of a mile downwind, and then they'll come back again, and they won't see the thing that spooked them, and they'll come in. I mean, or join up with another flock that came into the field at the time. And, and get, that, that gets them a lot of times. It mixes them up pretty good. They believe in the birds in front of them. Yeah. You know, they totally believe in the birds in front of them. And, that's, um, uh, and that is an advantage you have in Canada that you don't have a lot of places here. Because, you know, once they start grinding, you know, a new flock will just swoop down in there that hasn't been shot at or hadn't been in there. And it'll suck them all in at the same time. So, um, you know, I think that, I think they do remember certain things. I, I think, 
Like people wearing sunglasses in the decoys is like, I can't stand it. I mean, I really can't. And I have people I hunt with that do it, but I mean, it like just, me. it drives me crazy. <laughs> it does. And, and that whole side shooting thing is where, where I am in Alberta, the most common wind is a west wind. So you're going to stare in the sun every day in the morning, yeah. every single day, um, if you don't do something different, you know. So the side shooting thing takes a little pressure off the sunglasses too because at least you're not looking right into the sun. Right. You know, and, and any time you can get the birds to come in where they're looking into the sun, then your success rate goes way up because they can't see. You know, they can't see as well, just like we can't see when we're staring in the sun. So is it safe to assume, which it usually isn't, that when the feds put out the duck counts in July and August – and you start to see all the hatches and all the success that we've experienced over the last probably eight to 10 years. Consistently, we're seeing good duck numbers to start the year, start the season, start the migratory routes. I've seen a lot of ducks die in Texas, <clears throat> Kansas, Oklahoma, sure. Louisiana. Big flocks coming into those peanuts in, in, in Texas or into Oklahoma or, you know, in just as big a wads as you see in Canada sometimes, lesser Canada geese included. Is it, are our duck numbers that strong to where a lot of them are not getting hunted? Meaning that I know that there's not as many duck hunters in the world that there are deer hunters, okay? That's a fact, or turkey hunters for that matter. But you, ha you have to assume that most of the ducks that are making it down those migratory routes are not under that much pressure all the way down that flyway, or am I naive to think that? No, I don't think so. I think, <clears throat> first of all, couple of phenomenon one there's fewer duck hunters now than there were 20 or 30 years ago you know so there's fewer people doing it our duck numbers are this year they were down i think the u.s fish and wildlife service said 15 percent overall but they were down from historical highs i mean the two years previous were two of the top four fall flights ever recorded you know since 1955 so we're dealing with more ducks and fewer hunters but better hunters for sure um, better equipment for better sure. equipment better better properties better managed to to get those ducks in there um and uh you know so that their members or owners or whatever can, can get some opportunity and 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 you're right that when i said you don't see those big masses of birds like you see in canada elsewhere down the flyway you you certainly see them almost everywhere down the flyway in in certain locations you just don't see them every day like that right you know <clears throat> and so, you know, I think that it's, I, I think the ducks get more pressure in, in one respect, but get le less pressure in another. More pressure in that we're better hunters and, and places are being designed to deceive the ducks. I mean, the actual, the actual location where they're landing are. And, uh, but on the other side, there's not as many hunters and more ducks. And I've heard stuff said down here, like in Arkansas, one of the quotes that sticks out in my mind is, Man, once they're in the woods, you can't beat them out of there. When they have it in their head that they're going to this block of woods and it's the right conditions, you can kill them in there on a daily basis until they decide to go elsewhere. And I've seen it to where you're like, man, these ducks just will not quit filling these woods up. And then after you're done and you shoot out and you're in your boats, it's just nonstop flashing going on on both sides of the levee. I mean, the canal of the boat, you know, the boat road and just ducks landing everywhere. So you can't beat them out of there. So to me, it's all, it's like, it's a weird phenomenon. And Grant Kuyper said, this this year he says chad he goes our duck hunting has never been better in this part of saskatchewan we were up at buck paradise which is pretty close to where we hunt in alberta too and not very far from where you're at two hours two hours yeah. and 40 minutes he says our duck hunting hasn't been this good for a long long time in this part of saskatchewan and where i'm going with this dave is that 
when you go up there as early as you do and as good of a duck hunter as you are with all the expertise you have and experience that you have over the years, it's really hard for anybody to tell a hen from a drake at those early stages of September all the way into pretty much all of the later part of September, early October sometimes. Agreed. This year we were up there on like the 8th or 9th or so and you were there was still a lot of immature drakes that you couldn't tell were drakes coming in, especially if you didn't have your light perfect. Does that bother you? And I asked Grant, I said, does it bother you that these hunters come back with, uh, let's say you have eight guns out there with a daily bag limit in Canada of eight birds each of ducks. Does it bother you that potentially all 64 of those ducks, which is probably not the case, but could be, does it bother you at all that, that they could be female hens, mallards or sprig or whatever? And he didn't really say that it would bother him or not, but he said the facts are that it's obviously not messing with the duck population if our duck hunting has never been better. Do you agree with that? Or should there be a more conscientious effort to figure out how not to harvest so many hens that time of the year? I, um, I used to be on one side of this argument and now I've, I've, I'm on the other. And the side I used to be on was we shouldn't be shooting all those hens, you know? And, um, and then I spent a lot of time with people a lot smarter than me, people who've made their life scientifically, you know, they study ducks. Um, uh, one guy is, is here in uh, Nevada. His name is Chris Nikolai. He's an amazing guy, uh, PhD in waterfowl and, um, has done a ton of studies uh, specifically about the effects of hunting and whatever on duck populations. And his belief is that the, the hunter kill of waterfowl in the United States is to st- <clears throat> excuse me, statistically insignificant. You know, the death of those ducks is statistically insignificant to the population. Um, given good, fairly good um, habitat conditions and that kind of thing. I mean, think of it this way. Canada geese. We've been shooting those things for hundred and some years with shotguns, right? You can't tell the difference. Can't, cannot. You're killing a ton of female Canada geese. You're killing a ton of female speckle bellies. Snow geese are identical. Blue geese are identical. You can't tell, you know. So why would why would the population dynamics of something so closely related to ducks be any different than ducks? So, and and particularly from my experiences in Canada, I have come to realize. You know, shooting early in September or mid-September, there's a lot of brown ducks, like you say. You know, if you see a green head, it sticks out and he's going to get killed, you know, or get shot at anyway. Um, I can remember one flock this year that came in and I had a couple of guys with me who hadn't done a lot of waterfowl hunting. And I called the shot and they were obviously all brown ducks, you know, and they killed four of the five of them, which totally shocked me. And I went out to pick up these four hens and all four of them were drakes. They were just babies, you know. And, And so statistically... You know, until there are fewer hens being born, I I honestly don't believe hunting has an effect. I mean, I I think it's a conscientious decision and a good one to shoot a drake if you've got a choice. Okay, but but the other side of that coin that I hear people say, like in heavily hunted areas in the country, what does it matter as long as you get your birds and get out of the woods so they can get in there or get your birds and get out of the marsh so they can come back in there? You know, Um, there's a trade off to everything. Um, myself, yeah, I like the looks of a stringer with eight green heads on it a lot better than one with four green heads and four hens. So do I. But, you know, the reality is if you're going to hunt in places like Canada and you're going to hunt before the middle of October, you're going to kill some brown ducks. And a certain portion of those are going to be hens. And they eat the same. They really do. I love them. <laughs> we had some Saturday night. They were pretty good. <laughs> yeah. You, you knocked everybody's socks off. I mean, Les was bragging about it again today. Yeah. Um, so when you talk about the harvest of mallard ducks now this time of the year 
a little bit earlier than right now. We're in late October, but when you talk about Canada opens September 1st, right? September 4th, somewhere in there. Yep. And runs through November 21st or something. December 15th. December 15th. I think that's true. And it, it is in Alberta anyway. Is it okay to have the ideology that lets you use spinners north of the border, but lets outlaw them south of the border, or at least make it more difficult for a duck hunter to enjoy a duck hunt down here? Are, are they the effect of a spinning wing, a mojo duck in your decoy spread? Is the effect of that on that duck population different in Arkansas or Stillwater Marsh of Nevada or the Butte Sink of California, where a lot of those clubs don't allow them until certain times of the year? Mm-hmm. Or, and I don't think California does as a state. Why? Can we shoot them for 55 days straight in Canada with four or five of them in every one of our spreads with massive amounts of ducks reacting and giving it up to them and then come down here and get told that we can't? Yeah, it's a, it's a contradiction. No question about it. Um, I, I try to keep track of in a very unscientific way, you know, the numbers of, of young of the year birds we kill and, um, you know, when we're in Canada and it's more than 50% of the ducks. I mean, you know, and usually significantly more than 50%. So those birds are susceptible to anything, you know, I mean, they haven't been through the, the deal and they don't have parents like snow geese do that try to call them back out of the decoys. You know, they just boom, bomb, bomb in there. Um, so it's, you know, I don't I don't use spinning wing decoys in the, in the lower 48 and that's just my choice. Okay. But when you get in a field that's two square miles in Canada and the geese or the ducks are using it rather, you know, you, you need to have some way of getting them to see you. Then once they see you, you can turn the things off and do your thing unless the wind's not blowing. And then you're in this big field. They can come in from any direction and they will come in from any direction, but the one you designed them to come in from if the wind stops. So the spinners do help do help you. You can move them within your decoy spread. And that's the only thing you have to move to get the ducks to come in differently. So you can change the shot and get everybody a shot. Um, so I think they're really handy for that. And I'm sure that's true in the U S I don't spend a whole bunch of time hunting in fields in the, in the U S it's mostly, this is where I like to hunt over water and Canada's where I do most of my field hunting. So, uh, not universally true, but generally speaking, that's true. Um, so it doesn't bother me. Um, there shouldn't, I think there should be some, some, you know, the, the, the powers that be, I mean, the people who know about this, um, uh, they should make laws that aren't knee jerk reactions to something. You know, if, if, if spinning wings are deemed as bad, then tell me why they're bad and then outlaw them. And that's fine. You know, it's like, we used to have live decoys. Well, we don't have those anymore because they work too good. You know? yeah. So if, if that's the case with a spinning wing decoy, then let's get rid of them. You know? And I don't want to mechanize the sport of duck hunting you know, any more than, than we have to. Um, you know, we're, we're one of those sports that, that, that haven't gone that way in, in a lot of respects. You, know, we, you still have to blow a duck call. You got to learn how to blow it and you got to blow it yourself. You can't use a recording or anything like that of ducks, you know, um, setting up your decoys. There's no, there's no blueprint to do it. You know, you just got to mess around with it till you get it right. Um, the spinning wing is one of those few exceptions or, you know, mechanical decoys that spit water and make rings on the water or whatever, but you can do that with a jerk string. You don't have to have something mechanical to do that. Um, you know, it, it, it is one of the things that's tough to, tough to justify, you know, in my overall view of not mechanizing duck hunting. Well, do you take now just playing the devil's advocate um, conversation wise is then why don't 
you hear all of these guys that are traditional archers that say, you know, if you shoot a rifle at a big game animal, you're not really getting the just fit. Well, I'm like, your bow goes 420 feet a second, then go get a stick and an arrow. And if you're really going to be traditional, and I'm not saying that because I love the idea of archery and where it's gone and the advancements where welding tree stands together that you can get way up and be safe with safety harnesses and, or big, these big blinds that have heaters and couches and air conditioners in them <laughs> and stuff. Um, what's is there a difference in your mind now that where a duck hunter still has to perform he still has to get it done right but he's doing it with decoys that look just like ducks with apparatuses that can that can move the water um he's doing it with blinds that are very well that are easier to construct and hide now to where you don't have to go out and get saws and two by fours anymore um is there is there an argument there to where uh, an archer should have to have a stick and a bow and a longbow and do it traditional like they did back in the day before all this advancement in the archery technology you know it's it it's such a personal thing i mean i'm an archer right and, yep. and i don't i don't shoot traditional archer my my best friend that hunts that i hunt um archery with does you know he shoots a longbow and, and he's good at it and that's great and his maximum distance is 24 or five yards, and he's not shooting at an animal farther than that ever. Um, my maximum distance where I feel comfortable shooting is, you know, 40 yards. And with my, so that gives me a little more advantage than him, right? Is it right or wrong? I don't know. It's hard to get 40 yards from most of the animals I try to kill. So, yeah. You know, it's not like sitting in a, and, and there's nothing whitetail hunters don't get mad at me. But out here, we don't just sit in a, in a tree stand because the country is so much bigger and more open. You know, a lot of it is spot and stalk hunting. Um, you know, you, you have to be good at whitetail hunting in a completely different way than you have to be good at open country mule deer hunting. Um, they both are outstanding skills, but it's just a different game. Um, you know, it, it goes back to the conversation we were having a minute ago. I mean, we're, we're better hunters. We're better equipped. We're, we're dealing with better habitat in a lot of cases that are attracting birds. And we're dealing with some of the biggest populations of birds we've ever seen. You know, so... The trade-off is that some of that's going to, you know, it's not going to work exactly like I want it to, you know, or like any hunter wants it to. I mean, the, it, it's, tough for, it's tough for managers to say, no, no spinning wing decoys when we have the biggest fall flights in history. You know, why would you say that? What's it hurting? You know? And that was why my question, and I'm not saying that I agree on one side or the other. I, I use them. I believe in them. I know the power of them because I've seen the, the effect when you turn them off. Um, is it? I, I want to say one thing about that. There's there's a lot of clubs, and ours is the one that I belong to here in Nevada. The Canvasback Club is one that you hunt a lot of people in Thule Marsh in very close proximity to each other. So the problem with having spinning wing decoys in that environment is that if they're really really working, then you know the guys that have them are getting the shooting, and the guys that don't aren't. If they're spooking the birds, they're spooking everybody's birds. You know, so it's not like you're out on the marsh by yourself. And you're finding out, wow, these guys, they don't really like that spinner today. I turn that thing off, you know. Um, it's not like that, you know, because you are hunting in close proximity. So you, you don't want to be doing something that's affecting somebody else's fun out there, I think. And so at our club, we don't allow them until the 1st of December. So the crowd's thinned out a little. The nice weather's gone. Now, now we're going to be hunting over ice the rest of the year. And, and typically the draws get a little more spread out. By draws, I mean the places people hunt get a little more spread out, and then you're not affecting someone else's hunt, negatively impacting it anyway, um, as much as you could be early in the season. So that's just another reason, you know, to or not to do it. Um, I, I, 
I used to be have a super strong feeling about spinning wing decoys. I really don't anymore. Um, I know hunting in Canada would be a lot tougher without them. When when you take the effect of a spinning wing decoy and the power that it can bring to a hunt, um, meaning when I've seen a lot of ducks finish over the top of them, especially in dry fields, not just Canada, but down here in the lower 48 also. If we start nitpicking the way that people are... I remember back in the day when I when I wrote an article for the Goose Hunters Journal about about sky blasting and jump shooting, and your brother set me straight down in Los Manos at a duck calling contest about, hey, my dad grew up jump shooting wood ducks in Virginia, and that's one way to, that's a way to do it. And he taught me that. I've never never really looked back on the fact that hey, there is a place for jump shooting if that's your style of doing. It. I've never argued it again and, and and stated that, and it was probably premature to do so. But is it premature to have the thought right now that it, it's very difficult to get new people passionate and in love with the the lifestyle of duck hunting? Meaning, well, all these rules. You can't use a spinner here, but you can here. And you can't now, but you can next week. And you can only shoot that duck, but you can't shoot more than three of those and two of those. And and if you, you better not do it at this time because if your watch is one minute off from this minute, then you can't. There's a lot of laws and regulations in waterfowl hunting. Then on top of that, you add in the amount of money that it costs to put together an arsenal to go out and, 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 and be good at it. Then you add in on top of that the identification purposes of what ducks are what and what to shoot and when to shoot them and how not. I mean, you go to California and accidentally shoot a hen sprig that comes in with a bunch of mallards. Um, is it harder to get people in love with it when the chances of them messing up are so vast, like, are, are so common? It, it is. It is. And, and I do a lot of, I, I do a lot of, or a fair amount of work with kids, you know, kids camps and kids days and that kind of thing. And most of them have a hunting, fishing or waterfowling. Um, you know, there's, there's a purpose behind it. And that's one of the three purposes. Um, it, it's hard uh, for kids uh, that whose parents don't hunt in particular. You know, my dad, Alan's right. You know, we, uh, my brother's right. We, we learned how to jump shoot first. You know, that's what we did. We walked the creek bottoms and beaver swamps in southwestern Virginia, and and you know, we learned how to identify the ducks because in those days it was a point system, and and you know, if you shot a black duck, you were done. It was a hundred point duck. You're done for the day. You know, but if you shot four greenheads, you got to shoot four instead of one. And, and in those days, I think you could kill like 10 pintails, which was crazy. But, you know, that was just the point system. But um, anyway, I have advocated for the last few years, as have many people. It's not an original idea of mine. But, but I believe that to save duck hunting, to, you know, and that sounds drastic. But in the long term, I'm talking 100 years from now or whatever, um, you know, we need to make this simpler. We need to have a splash five limit, splash four limit, whatever. Just means you kill five ducks, you go home, you know. Um, that, that would make it much better for getting entry-level people into duck hunting. And, and you could do that in a couple of ways. You could do the splash five limit early in the season, and then on December 1st it changes, you know, to if you're concerned about particular species. And I get that. You know, uh, this this coming year, 2019, I think it's going to be the Fish and Wildlife Service's recommendation that they cut the eastern flyways mallard limit to two. You know, you can kill six birds, but you can only shoot two mallards. So there's another <laughs> another log or another jam you're throwing out there for these people that, you know, they just go, wow, what if I kill three and I'm on that Bombay Hook Refuge or whatever, you know, you're it's not good. Um, so... Um, the, the answer is we have to simplify the regulations. 
what people have to realize is, is that may cut into your bag limit, you know, but I've always said, I would rather have a 107 day season, which we're lucky enough to have out here in the West. Um, uh, I'd rather have a 107 day season and a three bird limit than a 60 day season and a 20 bird limit. You know? oh, yeah, I, I want, sure. I want the days I want to be out there. Um, Plus, it gives you the ability to where if it's hot like it has been in October so far, to where you still have you several days, you can make it up. That's right. And also, I like your point about when it's hot right now or not real bone-chilling cold, where we've been out there with chainsaws and cutting into the ice on several occasions out in the marsh, um, you know, when kids go, they don't want to be freezing cold. You can't bring an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old out there, a boy or a girl, and introduce them to the sport with those kind of elements. He wouldn't want to stay at football practice if his hands were freezing. And then you got to grab the gun, and the gun's cold, and then you got to reload it, and the ammo's cold, and then you get wet, and the water's cold. Um, so that gives a them... Certain, a certain amount of missing and disappointment. Yeah. And, and you got all that yeah, going yeah. on. Well, if it is a splash limit, and a, a father can take his son or daughter into the marsh and kill a couple till and a couple canvas back and not worry about what the game warden's going to say well that kid and that girl are going to be like dad i can't wait to go right. and then once it comes december and the weather starts to change and the climate falls off a little bit then you can say the kids you know they might not want to be out in the cold weather now we can take the more experienced hunters out there and say hey now we're gonna we, we're not gonna have a splash limit right now that might be one way to do it well it might and and there's and then you're not dealing with brown ducks anymore yeah. by the december 1st either yep. you know that the ducks Generally speaking, there'll be always be exceptions, but generally speaking, the ducks have their color at that point. So, um, you know, that's, that's, that's one way to look at it. Um, you know, we're, and, and that sounds weird coming from a guy in the Pacific flyway where you can shoot seven greenheads a day, every day of the season, you know, but, but I believe that that's the only thing that will, we have to do something to simplify the sport, to save the sport in the long run. You know, it's not in danger right now, but it's not. It's not healthy, I don't think. You know, no. when you're losing numbers, it's not a good thing. You know, I was just wondering why it's got to be so difficult, and it's it's the other one that I've talked to you about, you know, on here and in person is. I love wild game. I love what we did Saturday night, and we had stuff that we harvested and we butchered and we processed. And you're you're one of the most badass processors there is in all the country as far as making your own salamis, making um, a ton of different cuts of meat when you butcher every animal that you kill, jerkies, everything that you do. And then on top of that, you, your your main passion is waterfowl hunting. So your numbers are you know you you really want to have good numbers to supply yourself throughout the year. And I don't know how many times i've called you and said dave i need ducks i did it saturday dave i need ducks yeah. because we eat them so much right why why can't you have more than a three-day possession limit in your freezer is it because they think that you're killing them all at one time and you're stacking them up in there and you're just hiding them in there is that the thought by the government or, may, or by the feds or the the game warden divisions of our of our department of wildlife the law agency i think that that's the 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 residual leftover from the concern of market hunting, which is where limits came from in the first place, was to stop market hunting. And, um, you know, now we have these limits, and, and you're right. A, a guy might take a week off from work, and that's his only waterfowl hunting of the year. Well, he has three good days at the beginning. What's he going to do, go home and mow the lawn, you know, in December? No. Um, I, I think the whole possession limit thing is, is, is a limiting factor too. You know, I don't think it keeps people from duck hunting so much, but, but it does from time to time keep us all from being legal, you know? Um, 
Uh, that's well said. I like that. You know, I, I mean, it does. And, and, and that's not a good thing. That, that isn't something that attracts people to the sport either. No. <laughs> you know, no. but um, it, uh, you know, I have every intention of eating every one of those birds and, and I'm going to, you know, or and I'm going to share them with people like yourself and other friends who like them that don't hunt. And, uh, um, you know, and that's great, you know, and, and some years you have an overabundance and some years, you know, you're not answering the phone when that guy's calling to <laughs> ask you if he can have, have yeah. a few deaths. Well, it, ha- it really is hard to give them away yeah. unless you're invited to the party. I don't like to just say, right. yeah, come get my, I mean, I'll do it right. with some antelope <laughs> and yeah. I like antelope, but, right. but there's just something about mallard ducks that I love to prepare for different meals, a lot of different speckle bellies. But I, it just has always blown my mind that I couldn't go to your freezer and see like a, you know, you, you've hunted, like, that's a great example. You hunt seven days, you go on vacation for seven days. And I know a lot of people that do that. Mm-hmm. They kill their legal limit every day. Okay. And that game warden checks them every day. Well, what'd you do with the ducks that you killed yesterday? Well, I ate them last night. Well, where, uh, I have a grill in the back of my truck and I cooked them in the hotel parking lot. Well, show me that grill. And I'm like, no, no, it's not about that. I I'm doing this because I love it. And I love to eat this stuff. And I take a lot of pride in the, the butchering and the processing and, and, and educating people. Like you can, you, everybody's heard it. Duck sucks. It's liver. It's this. No, it's not. And we, we don't even need to touch on that because I know for a fact that it's unreal. And when you can, have anybody from my seven-year-old daughter and seven-year-old nephew to a 77-year-old Les Nesbitt the other night saying, holy shit, what did you do with this duck? This is unreal. That just shows you right there that if you're good at it and you take pride in it, you can really present something that is as good as a five-star steakhouse. And I'm not just saying that. You really can. I've had duck that people go, I did it last week in Canada and in South Dakota where people are like, that is not duck. That's beef. And I'm like, that's duck. And it's all on film. We filmed right. the whole thing and got their natural reaction. Sure. Why can't we just have a, our ducks in our freezer and eat them when we want? As long as we're not breaking right. the law and killing 10 a day when the limit's five or seven or whatever it is, why can't we eat them when we want? Right. Well, because that's not the way the law's set up, you know, unfortunately. And, and uh, you know, you look at the amount of meat you get off of a duck or a limit of ducks compared to shooting an elk or something, right? That elk will last you a year. And you know it's going to last you a year. If it's, you know, you and a couple of other people eating on it, um, it's going to last a long time, maybe not the whole year, but close. You know, you have your 24 bird limit. If you're lucky enough to stick 24 of them in the freezer on the last day of the season, you know, you get, you've got that many there. You know, those aren't going to last that long. So you hope there's several other people in your household with hunting licenses who did the same thing <laughs> because, you know, that's what, that's what keeps ducks in your freezer. But for those of us who love to eat them, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a, that's, that's a tough thing to deal with. It is because we're not, we're not killing more than our limit any day of the year. We're not even thinking about doing that. Um, but this possession limit is a, is a difficult hurdle to, to overcome. If you think about a couple of years ago, we were in Alberta and you guys were staying at a little motel in the town near where I live. And, uh, we were, playing bags and whatever in the parking lot, having a good time in the middle of the day. And you broke out the grill and we made duck tacos. Everybody in that motel ate duck tacos for lunch. And there's a bunch of other hunters and stuff there. No, no, I don't eat duck. You know, I, I give them away when I get them or they say, or whatever. They all ate duck that day and they ate a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of it. Yeah, exactly. And then they're, they're kind of second guessing because literally they were going, coming from the States, duck hunting up there and then giving all their ducks away before they left. You know, they'd find farmers or a church or somebody who wanted them. And, and, uh, 
you know, I don't, I don't want to give them away. I want to eat them, you know, and I want to share them with my friends. Which down in the States is a lot harder to do. As, it is. If you do, we want to make that clear that yeah. there's a right and legal way to give your ducks away in the States. Yes. yes. Now, I kill a bunch of ducks, right? I'm not saying I kill a bunch. Of, I'm giving you an example. I kill a bunch of ducks on a day. We Our group kills 15 ducks. We are going to um, take them back to our house. Okay. We live in the area that we're hunting. Mm-hmm. To take them from the marsh to the house, you have to leave a wing on for identification purposes, or is that just state lines? No, I think that's, you're not supposed to clean them. If, if you clean them in the field and you do it in an appropriate place, um, yes, you still have to leave an identifying wing on. And the way the law read the last time I read it was until you get to your abode. So in my case, when I'm out in Fallon at the duck club, when I get those ducks back to my cabin, I assume that's my abode, right? Is, is it my legal residence? No, but it's my cabin, and that's where I live during duck season uh, most of the time. Right. And, and so, you know, there, there could be an argument as to whether that is, is my house or the house in Sparks is my house. But, but you know, when, once I get them to my cabin, then I process them however I want to, and I transport them however I want to, and, you know... If, um, so let me get this right. Your abode is at a cabin, but your residence is in a different city. You kill them by the cabin, go to the cabin. Now that's your abode. Now you cut those wings off, put those mallard breasts in a Ziploc bag, and now you put them in a cooler. You put that cooler in the back of your truck and go 90 miles to your house. You get pulled over and you got those duck breasts in your in your cooler. Are you breaking the law? I am at first look from the game warden. He doesn't know where I came from. Okay. If, if my interpretation of the law that that is my abode and that's a legal, you know, that is legally correct, then yeah, I'm, I'm totally legal, you know, because I did what I needed to do to get to my cabin. And then, you know, I processed the ducks. However, I processed them, ate some of them, whatever, and then went home with the rest in a Ziploc bag. You know, the, the, Canada takes care of that when you're hunting in Canada because you have to have a, you can't bring them back in the States without a wing attached to them. And I don't know anyone that tries. I mean, why would you? You know, you, you know you're going to get checked. So, right. um, you know, but, but traveling around or like you and I frequently hunt in California, you know, and so is there an issue bringing them back into Nevada from there? You know, it, it matters whether you and I cleaned them or whether we took them to a commercial duck processing place. If you take them to a commercial duck processing place, they give you a little ticket that says what was in your limit, and then you're totally legal as long as you keep those birds with that ticket. Right? Really? Yeah. So if I go to California with you... Go to you, Gridley Bark. Yeah. So I go... Okay, so that's exactly where I was going to take these. Like me and you kill 20 specs, 10 men. We go down there on a Wednesday, we kill 10 each. Mm-hmm. We go to the Gridley Bar, and we say, we want these fully plucked. I've literally did this three times, five times, five times in the last three years. Yep. Where me and Rocky, Rocky and I have had an unbelievable day in the field. Mm-hmm. I take them over to the Gridley Bar... And I tell them, leave a wing on. And then when I pick them up, they all say, belding, wing on. So I don't need to do that? If it's a, if it's a commercial, commercial process and plant that's, that's um, you know, licensed by the state, any state, like, you know, wherever you are. But in California, I don't think there are any in Nevada, but I know there are some in California. Uh, because a number of the duck clubs there in the Butte Sink, for example, get that classification so that they can, you know, they just give the guy a ticket. A card, little cardboard ticket that has three hen mallards, or well, two hen mallards, <laughs> four drakes, and a wood duck. And you know, the guy can go home with those in his cooler, and there's no wing or anything on. So I can drive them across the state line now after I picked them up with that piece of paper, with them all wrapped in butcher paper and taped up with no wing on. Yep. 
That's the interpretation that you have of the law. If you did that, if you paid to have them processed at a commercial, and you facility. have to have the receipt and to show the, and the you piece of paper. Have the piece so of if paper. I go to Rocky Shop and me and you just throw down and breast them out real quick, or pluck them ourselves with no wing, and okay. then we throw them in the cooler, now we're illegal because we did we weren't at a commercial place or our abode, or at our abode. Right. We we're at Rocky's abode, but we it's were. not ours. That's right. So, so all we have to do is leave the wing on them to come home. Then we can cut the wing off and we're fine. Okay. Yeah. So in your freezer. So now you go home and they check your freezer and you have three over three days or you have your three days of mallards in there. So let's say we're in Nevada. You have 21 mallards in there breasted out. So you have 21 plus 21 is 42. 42 pieces of mallard meat, you know, plus a few tenderloins probably. You're legal, right? That's your legal limit to have in there. Well, what if over here in this part of the freezer, you have a bag of ducks that says 2017, 18 on them and not 2018, 19. Is that, does it transfer over to where this, this possession limit from the previous season still counts as my possession limit in 19? That's my interpretation. Yes. Holy shit. Yeah. Okay. Now what if it's made into salami or jerky? Is that processed and they can't count that as your bird? That's true. So now if I have jerky in there along with my 21 ducks limit, seven day or three day limit of seven birds a day, that jerky, I'm still legal to have a bunch of it processed into slab jerky or sticks. That doesn't count as a possession limit because they've well, been processed now. Yeah, you've taken them to commercial processor. You know. What if you did it in your backyard and you don't have that receipt? Well, that's a good point because that's what I do. That's what uh, we. That's what yeah. you do every day, and it's yeah, awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that you know, I don't know. I, I think it's. I think it's in a different form. Am I looking into it that, too much? You think, or no. should I be this worried with yes. how many laws we can break every day in this sport? It depends on you know. It really depends on the enforcement. And and what I would I, what I would really encourage people to do is is Find a game warden. Better yet, if you have the ability to contact them, talk to the chief game warden. You know, and in a state like Nevada, a small state. I mean, it's a big state area-wise, but people-wise, it's small. You know, we can do that. We can go down and talk to the head game warden, and um, you know, get their interpretation of it. I mean, and it's only as good as when that guy's in charge, right? You know, when it changes, somebody else may in- interpret it differently. But but what I've always believed is, if you have done nothing else wrong. The chances of somebody coming busting your door down to count the ducks in your freezer is microscopic. Now I say that some game warden's going to hear this and be knocking on my door, but but no, I'm serious. You know, if 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 you're under suspicion of poaching deer and you've got 30 ducks in your freezer, yeah, you should go down for that too. I truly believe that. If you're, you know, because if you did one of those things wrong, you probably did another one wrong. You're you're an outlaw. Right. Exactly. But uh, the chances of someone. First of all, knowing that you hunt that much is is minimal. And then, you know, having probable cause to come in and count the birds in your freezer is pretty small. I, I'm not advocating keeping more than your possession limit, um, but it happens. No, I'm not either. I just want to know. I want clarification on it because sure. I don't – I'm like – I want all my ducks in there. I might be planning a huge game feed wow. with you at the end of the year. And I'm just wondering if like, there's something you can do saying, Hey, I'm, I'm legal here. I've killed these on all different days, but I'm having a big birthday bash in January. And I want, and you know, me and Dave and I are going to throw down on all these, all this animals. Right. We might have over our limit in chucker. We might have over our possession limit in this, but rest assured, we're not going out and outlawing and killing more than we want to every day. Right. We are going to eat them all. No. But you're ill. It, the point is, is that you're illegal if you have that. If you have that thought process, if you have all those ducks in there waiting to do this big special party, mm-hmm. where we we know a lot of Italians and bats people around here, we'd love to do raviolis and stuff like that. You're illegal. 
to, right. do, to have that to have that idea. It's funny when I, I came back from Alberta Friday, and uh, so I was unloading. You know, I got in late at night, so all I unloaded was the coolers, and I brought some ducks back, and I brought a limit of uh, a possession limit of mallards back, which is twenty four from Alberta. So I'm over the limit in Nevada. Didn't even think about it till I was counting them out and putting them in my freezer. Went. Oh, jeez. Better uh, eat some meat. <laughs> Which we did. No, but Saturday. that's a good point. So that counts <laughs> so, against so, your possession well, limit here? You know, there's there's a piece of paper that you fill out when you cross the border, if you're if you're driving anyway, that and you put down the number of birds that you're bringing with you. So there's a record of what you brought into the country. And, and I was totally legal in Alberta, and I'm totally legal bringing it into the country, you know, but it, it just is a... You know, how about if you go to a more restrictive state where the limit's five or four a day? Yeah, so the possession limit's 12 or 15, and I've got 24 birds. I mean, that's that's considerably over the possession limit, not just three birds, you know. So, um, Do they give you a document at the border when you come back into the States of saying You can ask for a copy of it. You, you fill out the so, document yourself and tell them what you have, and then if you just ask them for a copy of it, they'll they'll make you a copy of it. So that would probably be smart to tell guys coming back to the states to sure. include you have that in your freezer with your birds to make sure that some game right. warden doesn't come in there and think that you killed them in America. Now, if I kill six ducks in Nevada from nine o'clock until eleven on a Saturday, and then you drive me to Northern California that afternoon hunt and you said the wind's supposed to blow we're going to get them and i go over there and kill six ducks in california as part of my seven duck limit in california state of california that's illegal that's illegal that's illegal. because i believe it's illegal i mean i'm not a lawyer or anything but yeah i mean they're you're you're taking 13 ducks out of the pacific flyway in one day and that's illegal okay so the nevada limit and the california limit if you hunt both states in the same day you can only have seven ducks total between the two states i absolutely believe that's true yes it makes sense <clears throat> but it's another law that you have to root because it's very easy for me i i got invited yesterday afternoon to go to honey lake because the wind came up remember mm-hmm. the leaves started blowing around here and i got a call hey let's go they're killed they're gonna kill them let's go come with us i'm like no man i gotta be with my daughter wanted to go bad mm-hmm. but i i very easily could have killed ducks yesterday on the truck a year at the cams back and then went out there and made the mistake whoa i i, I killed my limit in both states you really right. have to edge the ignorance is no excuse for the law we've always been taught that Agreed. growing up it I want to be, you know, very finite when I go out there because I don't want, it's my livelihood. It's your livelihood. I don't want to make a mistake to where people think, oh, he's out there outlawing. I'm not. I want to do it right. But I have some questions about what's considered right. And I'm sure that that, that's the case in every law that we have in our country. Sure. It just seems that in duck hunting, it's going to make it to where I'm going to be like, you know what? Screw this. I get in trouble every time I freaking come out here. I don't, I can't tell the difference between a hen sprig and a hen mallard and a hen canvas back. Mm -hmm. Well, you better learn that before you come back out here. Yeah. it's easy out. it's easy to tell when there's horns on top of a head easier that's right easier and I mean, people still make mistakes on that make mistakes there's on a that. branch behind his head and they thought it was antlers and they or shoot. the landowner said don't shoot a three-year-old and you right. shot a three-year-old on yeah. that there's yeah. a lot of things that go into it, but it seems like in waterfowl hunting regulatory is being regulatory correct it seems so much more difficult and again i'm speaking because i am a waterfowl hunter and you could very easily come back or somebody that's more that you know more educated in sheep hunting or whatever can come back and say no you got to think about this you mm-hmm. you can't hunt in a wilderness area you can't take a four-wheeler into this part you better not have a blender in your camper if you're hunting here. there's a lot of laws in everything we do i get it I agree. it just seems like it's hard 
harder to become passionate about this because of the mistakes that sure. you made. Take, take sheep hunting, for example, at least in Nevada. And we have the most wild sheep of any state in the lower 48, which is kind of weird for the driest state in the country. But, but we do. And they, years ago, simplified the sheep regulations because it was a three-quarter curl or a full curl. I think it was three-quarter curl in Nevada. You know, and that's a big desert bighorn. I mean, you know, particularly if he's broomed back or whatever. And there were people making mistakes, turning themselves in, losing their trophies, getting fined, doing whatever, because to the best of their ability, that's what it looked like through the binoculars, right? But most people don't have that ability. I don't have that ability, you know, and I've done a lot of it. Um, so they changed it and just said, look, kill a male sheep. <laughs> just just shoot the males, <laughs> you know? You fill your tag, you, you, you know, you pay your money, you you get your sheep go. Um, so th there, there are ways of, of doing that. You know, we, we, we used to have a, a regulation for what, what was a spike elk. I mean, it literally had to be one spike on each side, right? Well, what they realized is a lot of spikes have cheaters off of them. So that made that an illegal elk. You can't even see it when, because usually the velvet stays on there, right? So from 300 yards, you can't see a little two-inch point on the It looks like of, it's fur. Yeah, yeah. It's just all fuzzy. You know, it yeah. looks out of focus anyway. The guy shoots it, and he realizes, oh, man, that thing's better, got, better bury, Better bury this one and <laughs> yeah, go kill yeah, another yeah. one, you know? Yeah. But, or the guy turns himself in and loses his meat and pays a fine and does all that because they have to write him a ticket, you know? So they changed the regulation. They said, okay, they can't branch above the ears. Well, that's a lot easier to tell. Okay. If you got little branches down here, then, you know, you don't have to worry about that. Elk have big, long ears. So you get above the ears, you know, you can't do that with ducks, you know, and, and we don't want to see the season open on December 1st because it'll be too short. Right. And, and we'll lose a lot of hunters that, that only want to hunt in warm weather. And, and the reason I say December 1st is because by then the ducks are usually colored up and it's a whole lot easier for people to tell them apart. But, but mallards and pintails are one thing. When you start getting into gadwall and widgeon and the different kinds of teal and all of that, they're still hard to identify when they're fully plumed for lots of people. You know. but, but, but the good part about this, we're talking about this like it's all bad. It's not. The good part about this is, is we have hundreds of thousands of highly trained bird watchers out there right now because we all had to be, right? Yep. And we know we can train other people to do it. It's just getting them to take that step to come and learn and be willing to maybe make a mistake along the way. Good point. You know, yeah. um, it, you know it's, not, it's not all bad, and, and I don't mean to make it sound all negative, because it isn't, but, but, but we need to do something to make it simpler for people so that we have more entry-level people in the sport. With all of your energy that you do put into that part of this, which you're one of the best I've seen, you and Rock Merlo, I've never seen two individuals more dedicated to in new people being introduced, whether it's women, kids, boys, girls. Is there success rate happening there to where you're seeing these, this transition of a kid come to a green wing camp or one of your outdoor camps or a duck calling contest, and then you're hearing success stories, mom and dad are saying, man, Jimmy can't wait to go, or he went and he's in love with it. Are you, are you hearing that? Is it you happening? Are. Yeah, I am. And, and uh, in, in on several fronts in the different kinds of camps and, and activities we get involved in with kids, um, you know, I, I have met... Uh, at the end of last year, I was out hunting on a public hunting area in Nevada, and you know, I'm pulling my boat out at the ramp, and I see this young man with his dad, or presumably his dad, and he walks over to me, and 
I thought, God, that kid looks kind of familiar. And he came up and he introduced himself and he said, I was at the camp this July with you guys and um, had never shot a shotgun before. And now I'm out here duck hunting, you know, with my dad and, and we love it. It's really fun. And, you know, he told me he killed two ducks that season or whatever. And he was so excited about it. I mean, that's, that's the deal. You know, when you, when you see that happening, that's a good thing. And, and, but you have to, you have to expose so many kids to it to get that one or two or three responses, you know, but we can't stop doing it. You know, we just, it's, it's not a, uh, you know, duck, duck hunting is something that, that takes mentorship. There are very few people who are just going to go, yeah, I think I'll start duck hunting tomorrow with no help, no nothing, you know, cause it's, as we've said before, equipment intensive, um, uh, it's expensive and, and, you know, you have to, there, there's a certain amount of knowledge you have to have to do it. Um, you know, well, we just talked about a lot of knowledge, not to break the law, right, not right. to mention to be successful. Yeah, to be successful. So, um, but, but I do see that, you know, we, we do see the kids uh, and, and whether it's duck hunting or they, they, they came to the camp and got interested in it and took hunter safety and got their first deer tag and shot a buck or shot an antelope or whatever, you know, they send me, text me pictures of it and everything. And it's, uh, you know, that's the most gratifying part of it when you see that, that it's coming full circle and, and, uh, those kids that you've kind of introduced to it, dipped their toe in the water, you know, have uh, gone after it full bore. Do you think that more women are getting involved in duck hunting? Have you seen it? You've been, you, you're, you're out there, you're in the know. Are there more women, young girls? I, you see a lot of this, especially with social media. Now you see a lot of girls mm-hmm. that are, that are, ambassadors for country or for companies and brands and they're hunting and they're bloodied up and they're deer hunting and they're um i see a li- occasionally i see some deer i mean obviously being in the business that we are in our in our brand we have some females that are that have that have um i wouldn't say break broke the mold but i mean girls have been hunting for a long time but i don't see a ton- when i go on the road and i see a truck scouting or i go to a cafe and i see Ar- whether it's arkansas or alberta or saskatchewan or north dakota i go into a cafe i'm just being straight up honest i maybe maybe it's just that ideology that it's a boys trip but i don't see a whole lot of females sitting there with their with their camo jacket on the back of their chair with their you know their under their, their undergarments bibs their bibs yeah. on and they're getting their coffee with the guys or whatever i don't see a lot of it is that is that fair to say yeah it is fair to say and 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 unfortunate as well um i'm thinking back now the years i've spent in canada i think the only two women hunters i've seen there are my girlfriend and my daughter now that you mentioned that in in that part in in canada yeah and now and that's um you know i've been to lodges like grants you know and there's you know the the last time i was there at grants there was a a lady there that that hunted with us and she was great you know and and a good hunter and could kill them and but but it it is much rarer than it should be i think and and the canada thing may just be because it's a trip and women might go yeah i don't really want to go on a duck hunting trip i'm not saying that's universally true with women but that just may be the case in that thing or it may be a guy's trip um but but around uh home here I see a few more women, but I don't see it. I, I don't see it being a big explosion. You know, I mean, I wish it was. Don't get me wrong. You know, they're they're certainly capable of doing it. And uh, uh, it's know. got it's. There has to be an equation that is at least semi solvable. Solvable in this question is there are way more females that duck hunt. I mean, that deer hunt and turkey hunt. Then sure. there are waterfowl hunt. What is the equal sign? What does it say after the equal sign? Or what does it say after you give me your thesis of this problem you just figured out? What is the reason? Is it 
girls aren't tough enough to be in the cold? No. no. Girls aren't smart enough to learn how to blow a duck call or set up a decoy rig? No, not at all. Yeah. Um, girls don't have high paying enough jobs to afford the amount of equipment? No. What is the answer that we, that it's, I mean, I don't see a lot of women in waders and I'm not saying that there aren't any. Yeah. But I've been hanging a lot, uh, you know, a lot at the Prairie Sky Lodge and these fathers come with their daughters and they pheasant hunt. And they got them in their blaze orange and they got their crack shotguns or their over-unders or their wood grain shotguns. And the daughters come back and they got their pictures with the birds and they're ecstatic. The, the, uh, the fathers are happy. They're ecstatic. My, my daughter got her first. And, I, and I, so I start doing a little bit more due diligence and a little bit more investigative work that day and at that night at the bar or whatever. And I start talking to some of these. They're strangers. I had never met them until I got in camp with them. The, the fathers don't duck hunt. Fathers didn't come there at all to go. They they could have driven past nine thousand mallards in a in a in a cornfield and not even batted an eye. Right. They don't even care. Right. They literally have no idea. I had one gentleman that was there with his son and his daughter and his wife and his bunch of his friends. He was in finance banking, very successful. 65, 60, 67 years old, probably. I'm assuming, but I bet, bet you I'm pretty close. And he asked me I, one well, one of the guys at the bar says hey you know chad does this and that and then the guy asked me well why is duck hunting so important to you and why are these guys trying to tell me that it's better than pheasant hunting and so i went into a really just low-key but kind of like not not like put it to him but i was like here's why what i see in duck hunting and i laid it out there like everything that you would say and then i compared it to pheasant hunting and i said there's a lot of cool things in pheasant hunting i, I love the dog i love that part of an upland bird hunt and when i got done dave he came over walked over got up off his stool and walked over to me and put his arm around me and said i have never been more enlightened like that and i'm not bragging about what no, i said I I'm, I'm talking about he's like i had no idea i had no idea he goes you guys have binoculars and you're driving around and you're scouting and you got to spot him and you're watching he goes you went as far as to tell me where you're watching him land in the field he goes i don't even know where, where a pheasant would land if he flew into film like i get that it's a waterfowler you're putting all these pieces of this puzzle together all the time you're watching as a pheasant hunter you don't wake up and check the weather unless you just want to know to wear a sweater or a jacket you don't need to worry about the wind or the direction or the sun or the clouds they're going to get they're going to get flushed by that dog or pointed and they're going to fly up and you're going to say rooster you're going to kill them and that's awesome and i love eating them somewhat ducks way better i will go on record saying that yeah but what i saw dave is that not a lot of these fathers and grandpas and uncles waterfowl that so it's got to be a mentorship right. there's got to be a way to say hey let's figure out and ducks unlimited and delta and a lot of these conservation agencies have tried it what is the reason that women won't hunt ducks or not won't hunt but don't do it as much as a guy would well, there's got to be an answer yeah katie does it katie loves it yeah but I, she she grew up in it she did she did and i think that that's part of it um the you know, trying to develop the mindset at 25 or 30 or 40 years old that you're going to go stand in a pair of waders in the water for five hours and enjoy it is a difficult mindset for guys in some instances to to um, to develop. Uh, and, and more so with women, I think, just because it doesn't sound like it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, once you have little kids, duck hunting and little kids is tough. It's doable. I mean, I, I started taking my kids when they were two, but I was just going to be part of it. You know, I, I just resigned myself to the fact that, and it was a, the best decision I ever made, that I was just going to take them. And, you know, if it messed up the hunt, then we were, it's going to be about them, catching crayfish or doing whatever we were doing. Um, you, you know, you have to make that commitment. Uh, and, and a lot of guys don't get to hunt enough to do that. You know, that they're not, it's like the youth hunt is the, it's the craziest thing. 
when my kids were little, every day was a youth hunt. They got to shoot first every time. Lots of times I didn't even shoot all day, you know, because they were, they were hitting them and having a good time. And, and you know, w- with this youth hunt, we say, okay, well, we're going to have this day for kids to hunt. And it becomes the only day people take their kids hunting. You know, that's not the reason for it. It wasn't the reason. No, it's the reason is to get them going, and then hopefully their parents will continue to take them. And, and you know, they'll find older friends and all of that. Um, and the same thing I think is true with women. It's just, it's, it's, a, difficult, it's a difficult deal. Uh, if you think about all the duck camps you've been in, then think about how many of them are really conducive to women. You know, and, and it's, it's been a man's thing for so long. Um, you know, other than in places like, well, like where I grew up in Virginia, where you could walk out the back door and go sit along the creek and shoot a couple of wood ducks. You know, anybody can do that. Um, but, but duck hunting, like we're talking about it, not that there's anything wrong with doing it that way. That's fine. But you're going to, you know, graduate from that at some point. Um, it's, I, I you know, I, I can only theorize what the issues are, but, but I think a lot of it is that they weren't included when they were little, you know. And so it wasn't something that they grew up doing. The girls I know who love it and do it have been doing it since they were old enough to go. You know, they were going long before they could shoot, in other words. Um, and, and you just don't see that much of that. You really don't, you know. And I want to make it clear that we're not saying that, you know, that it's not. That I want them in, involved. Oh, I want them duck hunting. And um, Cal Davis, we did a program with the CWA, California Waterfowl Association, last year with Cal Davis, where they have a, a waterfowl biology course down there. Mm-hmm. And part of that curriculum is a waterfowl hunt put on by the um, Duck Haven Ranch in the Butte Sink, right. owned by Paul Bonderson, who used to be the president of Ducks Unlimited National President. And the CWA brings in all these mentors, and they bring in all these college kids that took this course. And they brought me in last year to um, to showcase some of this. And my the girl that or the student that I was put with was a female from San Diego, Pacific Beach. Um, was ecstatic, like sat in the blind and asked me all these questions. And she shot her first pintail. It was a really bad duck hunting day, especially for camera purposes with a real low hanging ceiling and a bunch of fog like California can have on any given yeah. day and no wind at all. And the blind wasn't very well hidden. So I went into this situation, but I didn't care. When I saw it, I saw that the, the, the message was more important than than what you know the hide it was more like she didn't know that the hide needed to be any better so it wasn't my time to teach her that part of it i really wanted to get her into the ideologies of the camp and what she's going to experience and 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 what we do on a daily basis in duck hunting and all the different apparatuses that we get involved in or the different situations that we get to hunt and lo and behold this girl goes back to san diego after she graduates from this course and gets her boyfriend who had never duck hunted he's into it they're both coming up to hunt with rocky this year for specs and ducks and she goes back and does the dirty work or the groundwork of getting a male involved in it and i was like that's how it's supposed to be right there there you go a girl gets engaged or starts dating a guy and she's been mentored how to duck hunt by her dad or uncle or a friend and now she said hey you ain't marry me unless you figure out how to blow this double read or the single read duck call figure it out right and and i think that that's i thought that that was so cool to see that these programs are in place out there that I mean, that's not known as a big duck hunting, you know, a big gun, uh, you know, gun pro hunting. gun place uh, area, that campus. And there, this it, it was so enlightening to see these kids that had never had the background in the outdoors. I mean, these kids were wearing flip-flops on the beach at Pacific Beach and riding longboards, and which is awesome. I love being down there right. when the timing's right. But 
it was cool to see him make that transition where she's hooked. She's coming back. She's already texting me. Hey, what days can I meet you there? I want to do this hunt. I'm fired up. I need to get more waiters. I need to get this. So there is a way to do it. I think it's just, it's being able to take that and compound it or multiply that on a level to where I've, I feel like that program right there probably introduced 15 new hunters to the sport that day, if not 30. I don't know if all of them are coming back, but their success rate's really high. I bet. And I think that if, if, we were smart as duck hunters, we would maybe look at that, that, that blueprint of not just that program, but other things that CWA is doing. And I'm not putting down Nevada waterfowl or any of the other waterfowl agencies. I just think that sometimes people just do it better. And CWA has figured it out with, you know, tens of thousands of volunteers, almost 30,000 volunteers, 120 full-time employees. I mean, I don't know if that's right. It's something they got a big staff now and they're a business. They're a, they're a brand now that's out there spreading this word, not just in getting new people involved, but egg salvage and youth camps and farming and conservation and communication and networking and all of the things. They just bought a farm there. They just, I don't know if you heard about this, but they just bought a private farm that they are going to make into a father, son, father, daughter, mother, son hunting place to where they're going to bring their members in and say, Hey, you got a private place to go hunt now. And you got to be a member CWA with the kid and use it as a mentorship of this farm being open to just their members to teach kids more of hunt hopefully the opportunities are more you know presentable there with more ducks and 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 be it being a private piece of ground and not sure. having to deal with a bunch of traffic but just little things like that i've seen along the way in this career that there is a right way to do things and that maybe there's a way to get that message of what the cwa is doing out there because it really is working it they're, they're, wow. they're introducing a lot of new people in a state that is against it. Yes. If you think about it, it's oh. hard as hell to hunt in California. Right. Or right. To own a gun or ammo or anything. And and I think that, you know, that I hadn't thought of that age demographic, you know, as being the as impressionable as they are, but they are. You know, that, that college kids college kid age person um, is you know, they're just getting ready to venture out into the business world. Most of them have jobs at least part of the year, you know, and, and, and a lot of them are, are broke, broke ass college students like all of us were at one point. But, um, you know, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's an excellent time to, to get them. I mean, you plant the seed, you know, and it might not grow for a couple of years just because of finances or, or getting done with school or whatever. But um, uh, it, it, it's probably more effective than doing it when they're 12. Nothing wrong with doing it when they're 12. I'm going to keep doing that as long as I can, you know, or 10 or five. It doesn't make any difference. But, but when you get them more to the age where they can go do it themselves, you know, they don't need a mentor at that point. I mean, you've, you've kind of served that purpose and, and she can contact you and ask you questions about, should I do this or what should I get or anything? Um, you know, once you get past those two hurdles, then, then, then you have more duck hunters, which is... And, and not everybody, even boys and kids and college kids and males are not going to do it. If, no. they, if they're, they're, We're not going to get them all. Just like you're not going to kill every duck that you see, you're not going to get every person that you want in the sport to keep this sport going. They're not all going to do it. My nephew, Caden, is 13 or 14, and he's been hunting, but he never got eaten up, eaten up with it. His brother, Chance, he got eaten up with it pretty good where he loves the deer hunt he and he loves the predator hunt. Mm-hmm. My nephew... 
Chase is seven and he's freaking through the roof about it. He'll be a master guide by the time he's nine, I think, the way he's going, right? I agree. That's an exaggeration. But he's just cut different. He's his wired different. So we're not going to get them all. It's the, you take that one and you get Chase into it really good. And now he goes out and he's able to spread the word and get some of his friends involved right. because he's seen it done right. He's been there. He knows it's safe. He knows that the equipment's good to keep you warm. He knows that the food's good and the nightlife's good and it's not all work and no play after the duck hunt we go and play cornhole and the kids are running around and there's no better place than duck camp and a kid that's growing up there like katie or jd did or that chase is now and these kids are now that they're they're the ones that are going to go out and be able to help us get their friends involved in it by bragging on the sport so i think it it goes back to that one word that uses mentorship whether you're mentoring a 12 year old on a youth hunt or a college kid at a cwa kids camp or a seven-year-old when he's just coming up and you know finding his way and not even finding his way yet just growing up at in childhood years if you do it the right way and you show them the 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 loyalty the love the passion the the compassion we have for these animals that what we do for these animals um the, the 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 recipes and the processing and all that part of it and then teach them like hey you, you sound really good on that duck call let's learn this move right here or you sound good on that elk bugle let's learn this then you know now you're mentoring in all of these different levels and that's what it takes is mentorship because i if i wouldn't have met you and jd i wouldn't be sitting here right now think about it i was literally chucker hunting once in a while and mule deer hunting as much as i could growing up when i was lucky enough to draw a tag the rest of my life centered around one thing and that was baseball right and then i got into calling in the right way to duck hunt with you and jim ray and these guys and then i was like dude I'm never looking back. I, I was eaten up with it. I'm not saying that everybody's going to get eaten up with it, but most no. duck hunters that you meet that do it are eaten up with it. And it takes that. We got to find those people that have the ability to get eaten up with it. Sure. And that you might find one that's going to go once or twice a season. I get that. But the true eaten up with it, can't live without it. Ducks own your world every day, 365 days a year in one capacity or the other. That's the ones that we got to find and educate them in the right place because they were wired for it. There's some people that were wired for it. I was wired for it. It just took me later in life to get introduced to it. Sure. I'm not saying that I never went duck hunting, but I never I never really went to where I was like, wow, that's how you do it. That's how you make ripples. That's a jerk string. That's about the sun. I don't want to hunt on cloudy days. Well, that's supposed to be a ducky day. It's stormy. No, it's not. There's so much. It was awesome, and it just blew my mind, and it still does to this day. So I think that we got to find the ones that can get eaten up with it, mentor them to the point to where now they can go out and get the, you know, the weekend warriors to at least be part of it right. for some time. We're not going to get them all. I don't, I truly don't think we are. Well, well we can't. I mean, that, that would be an impossible job, but, but you're right to find those, those, those kids that, um, you know, it's what they want to do period. And I mean, I saw the transformation in you when the light bulb went on and, you know, 20 years later, man, look at what you're doing. It's amazing. You know, and, uh, and, and it, you know, changed, certainly changed your life forever yeah. and, and that of your families too. And, uh, in a, in a very, very good way. Um, you know, and, and those, those, there's more of you out there and more of me out there, you know, and, yeah. and um, but you, you can't miss, miss an opportunity when you run across. But one. you said something really important there that really opened my mind on, on who is going to step up and take the responsibility of when you said that about the youth hunt, that blew, that really opened my eyes. It really made me go, man, 
that really is the only time they're taking them because it's designated. And then the rest of the year, it's just regular duck camp with highballs and in the guy's life again. And the kids are home with the mom. And then, but that's not, if you really, if that kid went on that youth hunt and he was wired for it and he shows you just a little bit of dad, I need to get a duck call. I need this. I need that. And then boom, it's time to roll. It's time. That's your responsibility as a parent. It's time to make that transition. Now that the trips with the boys and your friends are probably slim and none without your son now. And that's just the way life is. When you took the responsibility of having a son or a daughter like I did, when you know it's time to start getting involved and, and taking them all the time, it just is. It's just natural. You'll know it. Agreed. And I mean, I, and I think that that Ducks Unlimited is obviously a great platform, but but organizations like that, I mean, they need to they need to embrace the make every day a youth day, you know, idea. That's they, pretty cool. They do. You know, I mean, CWA maybe yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Rocky's done it. Yeah, yeah. Rocky's done a great job of and, it. And and you just you know you take them and, and and yeah, it's not the youth day, so you know, so what? You want these guys to be doing this. You want them to be carrying your decoys thirty years from now. You better you better get them into it. Hundred <laughs> percent. You know, so yeah. Well, I, that that subject is you know the the laws and the regulations and getting new people involved and how to do it. It's 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 one of those things to where it's a full time job to do it. It's the there's people that have to start dedicating it and don't know if it's me, don't know if it's you, I don't know who it is, but it sounds to me like there is an ability to find the right people to get involved in it and 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 show them the the badass lifestyle that being a duck hunter really is and what it can be not the money part of it i'm talking about the the camp and and the way they grow up and the way they can live off the land and what katie's expectations were in a man when she met a man and what john david does he just got engaged and we'll talk about that in a little bit but he fell in love with a girl that fly fishes too and paints wildlife and and they're going to raise kids that are going to be involved in the lifestyle and i don't know it'd be really hard for anybody anywhere in the world to persuade me that there's a better way to raise kids than in the outdoors and living off the land and eating your own bounty and, and catching your own fish and growing your own vegetables. It'd be really hard for you to persuade me of that. And I think that they did have a head start. You know, you don't see very many seven-year-old, nine-year-old girls like Katie Stanley driving to Mitsubishi with a license plate that says canvas back on it with a duck hunting sticker that says duck hunters are walking proof that chucker or chucker hunters are walking proof that duck hunters are smarter. I remember it like it was yesterday and she's driving around the club at nine years old, learning how to drive. Yeah. And, that, and now, you know, they just, they just keep advancing in life. And I think that that's the message that has to be out there, that every day is a youth day. Get them involved in those camps. Get them involved in all of that stuff. I love when Alyssa's in my driver's seat at seven years old and she's putting the blinker on and looking in her rear view and, and not letting her skip right. the steps, not letting it be just like this little fun time. This isn't a ride at Disneyland. We get on a dirt road and I'm like, here's what we do. You're on the, if you're in the Yamaha and you're driving it, your helmet's on, your safety belt's attached, you got gloves on, you're safe. I'm not saying that she's never going to get in a position to where she's on a four-wheeler going five miles an hour that, you know, that she's not 100% safe. But I want to teach her, like, hey, this is the right way to do this. And then give her the freedom to go out and be able to say, yeah, I want to blow a duck hole. Yeah, I want to set up a decoy spread. Yeah, I want to get a bow and arrow. Yeah, I want to get a fly. I want to go fishing with Uncle Dave. I mean, they've, they've both caught fishes, fish with you standing on the shore of Pyramid Lake, cutthroat trout on a fly rod doesn't happen very often. No. So I think that there's a right way to do it, and we got to find those kids. Alyssa's nowhere near as eaten up with outdoor living and hunting as Chase, and I don't expect her to be right now. Sure. But she loves blowing a duck call. She loves doing goose sounds with her mouth. She can, she can, she's really getting after it. So I really want to make sure that she, that she has at least the opportunity to be good at it. 
And if she chooses to be a volleyball player, then so be it. Sure. But I still want her to love to eat duck and prepare duck the right way and live off of the land. And I think that with these college courses and these kids camps and these mentorships that you're talking about, we can take it a step further and figure out how to be, how to make every day a youth day. I think that's a perfect way to say it. It's pretty badass. Yeah. The Dave Stanley initiative of make <laughs> every day youth day. It really does make sense. If you have a son or a daughter or a nephew or a niece, take them. Take them. Mm-hmm. It's not going to inhibit your hunt. Now, I'm not saying like they might not get to go when it's eight below and you're cutting a hit, hole in that ice with a chainsaw. Right. Pick and choose the days, but at least take them. It, when you have an opportunity, make that day a youth day. I'm not saying don't stop hunting just because you can't take your kid. That's no way near the message, but take them if you can get them out there, right? Right. What is the uh, what is your thought on the flyways? Meaning, do all the ducks that come to California start in British Columbia because it's the most western province of Canada, and that's where they come down from the breeding grounds in the tundra? And then you have Alberta right here, and then you have the western part of Alberta on this side of the Rockies, and the eastern part of Alberta on this side of the Rockies. Do those ducks go straight down to to Montana, and and then they stay along that route? Or do they ever go east and west? Yeah, they, they do. They do. Um, a lot of the birds we get, uh, almost all of the birds we get in the Stillwater Marsh come from uh, the Great Bear Lake, you know, or from Tule Lake. So for those of you that don't know, Tule Lake is in Northern California. The Great Bear Lake is at the north end of this, the Great Salt Lake. Um, I call it Great Bear Lake. It's Bear River at the north end of the Great Salt Lake. Um uh, and, and those, they come across Utah and fly across Nevada to the sink and then across the mountains into the Central Valley of California that way. And then obviously the ones that come from Tule Lake, there's just a portion of them, a small portion that come on the east side of the Sierra, which we see, and the massive portion of them go down the Central Valley of California. But the ones that come on this side eventually cut across and end up in the same place the others do. So they, so to answer your question, they come from, you know, Alberta provides ducks in three different flyways. Um, you know, from banding, they know that, I mean, a significant, you know, contribution to the Mississippi Central and, and Pacific Flyway. Um, I think Alberta probably contributes the most to the Central Flyway, but I don't know that for a fact, you know. But for sure, all three of those, um, you know, the birds that are that are raised in the potholes there, um, you you go a little east to Saskatchewan, and then that's mostly the Mississippi and Central Flyway, and some Eastern Flyway, and then the farther east you go, obviously the more the farther east Manitoba, the, Ontario, it, it moves, and right? PEI and so. but, but it's crazy when you look at it, it. I enjoy looking at banding return information because there's crazy ones like uh, a friend of ours bill henry used to be the biologist at stillwater banded a, a redhead that was killed 60 days later in U- louisiana you know how does that happen he banded it where <laughs> in stillwater and he got killed in louisiana 60 days later <laughs> wow for the hell of it i'm just going to fly over to new orleans real quick <laughs> yeah, yeah from nevada so but there's lots of those you know it's it's interesting to see how that happens but um our you know the bulk of our ducks come from alaska british columbia and and then some from Alberta, you know, but, but for sure in the Pacific Flyway, British Columbia and, and primarily Alaska, Yukon, you know, um, is where the bulk of. So a duck comes out of the kind of the eastern part of Alberta. He gets into eastern Montana, western North Dakota area, gets into that area of North Dakota to where the Missouri River starts. And now he starts to follow that river system down. 
to where the, that Missouri River system is going to run down all the way. It can go all the way down through, you know, the far side of Nebraska and then down into, you know, Iowa, Nebraska, that whole way down in Kansas City. Then you got the Mississippi River to where all those ducks start to come down that. And that, that's got to be why a lot of those ducks that end up in Arkansas and that part of the Mississippi Flyway, it's right because they got so many duck factories that are are supplying them and filling that duck tank up That's with right. fuel because of those river systems. They th- that those river systems got to play a big role in it, right? They do. Because I've not seen birds. I don't know if I've seen more mallard ducks anywhere in my life than on the Missouri River at times. From Biz- from all I mean, all the way from North Dakota down, you know, through Iowa, I've seen places that are just sure. jam packed with mallards, and it's it's that's got to be you know a lot of those ducks that because that Missouri River starts way over you know what, right where I'm talking about in that part of east you know I don't know exactly but eastern Montana, western North Dakota, right there, Actually, right? In central Montana, central Montana, yeah, well, I, and even. Central to Western Montana is where the Missouri starts. So it, it, it's a big, you know, it catches a bunch of them, right? A bunch you of know, them. It, they hit that and they start following that or they hit um, the Yellowstone and follow that system into the Missouri and then down to the Mississippi. So, you know, one of the reasons why the Mississippi Flyway has the most ducks is it, it drains the, the major river in that flyway. The Mississippi drains the greatest area, you know, so the ducks are following the water and that's how they all end up down there. That's why there's so many ducks in Arkansas and Louisiana and Texas. Uh, yeah, because you got the Missouri and the Mississippi plus other rivers, and then you get down there and you got all of the subsidiary rivers like the the Black and the White and the Cache and the Arkansas that comes out of Kansas and Colorado and Kansas, and then all of those kind of drain off into the the Great Mississippi. And then, but that 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 Grand Prairie is getting a lot of those ducks as they move down those river systems towards the Mississippi River, which kind of divides Arkansas and Mississippi and Louisiana and Mississippi and the Delta area down there. That it just makes sense that they're coming from so many different areas up north, and by the time they funnel down, they're they're all in the Grand Prairie, the, what they call yeah. the duck capital of the world. Yeah, the funnel's huge at the top and really small at the bottom, you know, yeah. just like a funnel is. And, yeah. and uh, it works, you know, that's that's the model for the Mississippi Flyway for sure. Which is probably, it's easily the most populated. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You think about the ducks that get killed or get seen in that flyway a year. It's amazing. I mean, I've seen pockets of ducks where you could walk across them and snows, Canada's. I mean, it's 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 truly special to see what happens starting right now when they start to leave Canada, which it was a little earlier this year. I mean, right. I there was more ducks in South Dakota and North Dakota than in October 12th to 15th time range, time frame that I remember seeing there in November 10th, the previous two seasons. This migration seems to be a little bit more true, or is it early, you think? I think it's early. I think they just got snow and, and uh, it pushed them a little bit. And, and no big, horrible storms, but uh, we had an ice storm in the middle of October, and, you know, fully half of the birds in the area left, for sure. You know, after... It rained all day, and then the last two day, two hours of daylight, it snowed, and then the temperature just dropped down to like 10 degrees, and uh, you know just froze solid. And it was only like that for a couple of days, but the birds went, "Wow, let's get out of here! <laughs> it's cold. You know, the pea fields are frozen. We can't we can't get any food." And and really, that was the unfortunate you know kind of coincidence was that with all of that rain laying on the ground, and then the snow on top of it, and then the it, the temperature dropped so fast it there's literally a sheet of ice on everything you know i mean they just that was the day after i saw you up there as a matter of fact that's when it happened yeah and uh because uh, we were going to come up and, and you know see the concert and it didn't work out because we couldn't get there yeah we woke up that day to freaking 
big snow. I mean, it was like supposed to be three, and I think it was more like seven in some areas. Right. Which and made for some pretty cool spectacles. Yeah, definitely. Um, unless you were a farmer with your crop land. Yeah, terrible ground, for them. Know? So, yeah. But but that, I think it was, to answer the question, I think it was early. You know, I, I think the birds did move earlier this year than, certainly than in the last seven or eight years. Which gets everybody's hopes up down here of, hey, it's going to be a real season. We're going to get our ducks on time. But there's a lot of other factors now that come into getting sure. those ducks from here to, let's say, here, you know, on the map of where you might be hunting, where, whether it's the Butte Sink or whether it's Tule or the Stillwater or whatever. There's still a lot of things that go into what, you know, that dictate that migratory route. Sure, and that was just that part of Canada. You know, who knows what happened was happening in British Columbia or Manitoba, but in Saskatchewan and Alberta during that time frame, that's what was happening. You know? yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's amazing when you watch that, uh, how that migration changes and everything. I, I remember you telling me about leaving Saskatoon one time because it froze up like in a big hurry and, and the birds were just pouring out of the Gone. Birth. I mean, you could see them get up and just... Yeah, and they were just gone and gone and gone for 24 hours getting getting out of there, you know. And, you know, you go far enough south, you find them again and start all over again. <laughs> but, yeah, it's you can see the migration happening there. Once they get to the States, I think it gets, in some instances, it gets scattered out. I've never lived along the Mississippi Flyway, so I've never had the, the advantage or the, you know, the, the opportunity to see that happen, the migration all the way down that. And I bet it's pretty amazing, you know, in the places where those ducks pile in and, you know, when they first get there and seeing it go from a few local ducks to hundreds of thousands of birds. And, you know, I like seeing hundreds of thousands oh, of birds. I, I was where it is. just listening to yeah. you talk. I'm sitting here just like the you, you, you get to experience so many. I just use the word spectacles, which is a dumb word, I guess. But you get to experience so many visions on the road of of things that you can't put into words. Like I'm so thankful that we have a film crew with us most of the time that can catch some of this stuff. Because when you were talking right there, I was thinking like, man, that just made me think of, well, that thought just got taught by this thought. And it, it happens to me all the time on what we get to witness as outdoorsmen and hunters on. And again, I bring it back to duck hunting, but just traveling the roads and knowing what time of year it is and the opportunity to see the things we're getting raised. You can't see fish unless you go to an aquarium, right. but you drive past a different part of a river that you, you know, there's fish in there and you can't wait to get there. It brings back a memory. The vision, and you've already brought it up today, the visual part of waterfowling is so powerful to me of seeing what these birds can not just the way they can contort the air and maple leaf and and you're looking at that mural right there those ducks coming into the prairie wings place but in in and knowing that we get to do it for the next 90 days huh. if you're out there doing it and get the chance to do it you got to savor all of them and it's almost now i know why people started taking duck journals it wasn't just about the kill it was about the weather pattern it was about the sun it was about the clouds it was about the crop or the food or the or, or what uh, you know everything that went on and and they were painting a picture and writing it down and it makes you wish that you would take the time to do that now because i can't even remember everything that i saw in canada and i sure. and i know i can't because when i go back and start watching the footage with the production crew and i'm sitting there going whoa when did that happen? Oh yeah, that was that day. But it happens so fast in real life. Yeah. And then you can slow it down with these new cameras that we have. And you're like, that goose really, that duck just did that. Wow, look at what that is. And then we see these bears and we see these moose out there. And then these big, then, then it's time for the mallards to start coming off the roost. And you're just like, look at the power of them pouring into, not even thinking about it, just pouring in to this field to get to these peanuts because it was finally time to eat peanuts because it wasn't wet. Which is another thing that I learned up in Canada this year. For the first time of going there for a long time, 
mallards don't like going into peas when there's snow or water on them. And I, I don't, do they make them soggy? Do they like the crunch in them? I mean, what, what, what is the, what, is there any thought on that at all? I, I think it's early in the morning and it's cold and it's frozen and they can't get them out of the mud. I mean, I think the peas are frozen in the ground, you know? I know they were that day after you left. Oh yeah. Well, you <laughs> can't. I was, I was hunting in a pea field, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, and the birds all came to the pea field, and there had been several, a couple thousand of them in there. And they came to the edge of the pea field and just looked at it. weren't anywhere near our decoys. Just looked at it and went, "No, we can't feed there." Turned around and went back to the roost. Watched so, them do it all morning. So they know. Yeah, they just know they can't. They can't. It's not time yet. You know, we, and we killed a handful of ducks because ducks aren't as smart as geese are. Was it sunny? No. Uh, See, because a lot of times they're going to have to wait for that sun to get up and war- at least try to warm some of it up. Right. And we hunted that all day. We left our decoy set up because we had already punched through the ice and done all the work. And we did kill some ducks in the evening. Um, you know, we got the rest of our, our ducks. But we really set up there to kill geese because it was loaded with speckle bellies. And well, I think we shot one all day. Yeah, because when you go to a cornfield and you scout it on a Friday and it's clean and then you watch the forecast and you know you're going to get two to three inches of snow, you can go back in there and kill those ducks and geese in that cornfield the next day 99% of the time. We went out, scouted this pea field, hammered with mallards and lesser canadas, few snows, few specks. We're like, oh, we're going to smoke them. And I'm like, yeah, it's going to snow tomorrow. It's going to be even better. They're going to be starving. Every single one of those ducks that got off the roost that did in a normal time went to barley. Every one of them. They did not even... We killed some birds, don't get me wrong, but nothing like it was the day before. They, they got over it, and they, they were... A lot of them didn't even come towards it when they were getting... And we, we didn't blow a roost. We were nowhere near a roost when it happened. We were miles from it. Exactly. And we thing. didn't see the birds. Yeah. We didn't see the birds. Exact same thing that happened to me. And, you know, like I said, those first few bunches that you expect early in the morning came, and they looked at that field, and they were low. I mean, you could have shot them if they were over the decoys, and they're looking at that field, and they just... Never flared, nothing, just curved back and off to the roost they go. Wait till the sun comes out. <laughs> they knew they weren't going to be They're smarter than we give them credit for. Huh? <laughs> Sometimes they are. <laughs> it's, I just listened to you talk though, like I'm so thankful. And I mean this, like I'm so thankful that we get the opportunity to go up there and do that when it's completely like the ducks are talking about coming south and we're talking about going north and that whole phenomenon is awesome to me. And then it's like you get up there and you're like, where in the freak are all the hunters at? And then you're like, oh, good, they're not here. Like, you know, like it's still, it's yeah. still not like you, if we had places like that down here, you know, and there was that many ducks in an area, you'd rest assured that, that people are going to be in them. And, and I'm not, I, I want people to go to Canada and experience it. And yeah. we, we promote outfitters up there and, and we, we know the birds are going to be there when we get there. We're going to have a great time when we do it. But just to sit there and understand that for that many days in a row, and you have the chance to see that many birds, Hunter McLemore, can I bring up his name? He corrected me. He's like, you called Arkansas the Mecca. And he goes, this is the Mecca. This is the, if you're a waterfowl hunter, this is your Mecca right here. This is what you need to see. And it's, it's true, man, because even like, even when you think you're defeated up there and you get one little ounce of hope when you see a flock and you went, follow them, we followed them and it turned into like, holy. And you know what? I go, why didn't we find these birds before? And I go, they're right on the highway. And my boy goes, my buddy goes, they weren't yesterday. 
He goes, I drove right by here. They were not in here yesterday. These birds were piling into this barley right on the highway. And we went in there and lit them up. And, and even though I made a mistake in my hide, I got a little bit too down into a hole. And I'm always going to say this, and I don't know if you feel the way when you scout, I really like to see where those birds are hitting the first groups that come into that. And I'm not saying they're not going to land up here and walk down here, but I, I tend to lose confidence in my my arsenal if i get too far down into a deep part of a of a field i I think it takes the confidence away of the finish of ducks and geese and i saw it man those mallards would come in they'd be so come in we we finished a bunch of them but there was a lot of them that weren't buying it because they're like i wouldn't land right there those those you're not fooling me right here with this and i think that if i'd have been more on an apex and i learned that a long time ago is that you've got to be on a higher point in that field because the birds that you see in those lower parts didn't land down there they probably walked down there at some point yeah I completely agree with you. I think being high up is always an advantage. Um, I mean, for example, down in those holes, you can't kill snow geese down there, period, because they're going to, you know, they they judge their distance off the ground from the highest point in the field, where ducks, when they come up, you know, when they're coming uphill at you, let's say they're down below you 40 or 50 feet, but they're coming up this, you know, up the field, they're going to stay you know, at the same altitude they are. And so they're, they're getting closer to the ground as they come up the hill. You know, they don't, they don't tend to leave to have that 50 yard buffer like a snow goose does all the time. Right. Right. And, uh, so, so the higher ground is always better. I think, um, you can certainly see better. Um, I've done that and, and I've tried to not make that mistake more. And one of the things that helps with that is I put up like two or three pieces of reflective tape around the handle of my shovel and I wait till the birds leave at night and I go out and put my shovel in the ground where I want to be set, where I want the blinds to be. You know what I mean? And I just punch it and then the next morning I can find it with my flashlight. Because everything's different in the dark. Huh? Oh man, you'd be a quarter of a mile, you know, if a field's two miles square, it's really easy to be a quarter of a mile off because you can't tell, you know, and, and, it's, and it's difficult to judge the distance from the road, um, you know, unless it's a perfectly square field and you can drive all the way around it, but that doesn't ever happen, you know. I mean, there's going to be trees or something in your way. So, so I do that. My brother this year, he goes, you know those little reflectors that people stick in the ground, little red ones like for their driveways? That's perfect. That's even better than the shovel, Yeah. you know. So you just take one of those out there and stick it in the ground, and you know you're going to be in the right spot in the morning. That takes all of that out of there, and the 20 minutes you do f- driving around in the field, you know, trying to see if you're in the right spot. As long as you get there before another hunter does, and then he goes in there and finds your reflector and goes, oh, I'm going to set up right here. Thanks for doing all the work for him. Right. But it does. It's like you get in those fields in the dark, and people are like, no, it's right here. No, it was over there. It's so smart to to spot it or to mark it to yeah. where when you get in there with your headlights and jump out of your truck with your headlamp on and you look even like when you look across the field and go there's a tree line right there and it looks like it's 300 yards away and then you the sun comes up and it's 80 yards away yeah happens all the time right well, and you think the farthest decoys are 80 yards away and they're 30 yards yeah, away all the time it's weird like it as many days so as you do it you're like i was knocking the rust off a lot up in canada i'm like man i'm making some mistakes here like didn't go long enough with this spread didn't go i did it the other day in south dakota because it, i'm i get too much going on at one time and i'm trying to watch the guys build the blind and make sure they're doing i'm not micromanaging i'm just like yeah. Well, if they're putting the blind this way, I got to do this. And then when the sun comes up, I'm like, who in the freak set up this decoy spread? <laughs> oh, it was me. Right. Oh, it was me. Like, you look like a dummy. And so, so there's two things to that. One, like I say, put a reflector or something. If you have the opportunity to stay till dark, you know, and, and the birds leave, and then go out there and stick it in the ground. The second thing is put it where you want the blinds to be based on the weather report you have at the time. So if it's supposed to be a west wind, put it so you're set up to hunt the west wind. 
you know, when it switches. Then, then if it switches, you know, if 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 you if you have a different weather report that morning, then you know what adjustment to make from where you know where you are in relation to everything else. Does that right. make sense? hundred percent from the top of the hill, you know. So um, that's the first thing, and then the second thing is put your blinds out first, you know, for sure. If you're going to use layout blinds, or or if you're going to lay out in whites, just put your little layout chairs out first, or set your panel blind up, and then walk it off. Walk out there, just take a snow goose decoy and walk out there 50 yards and to the right and 50 yards to the left and put it in there, you know, and then build the bulk of your spread. And, and I mean, I, I frequently string snow geese out more than 100 yards from the blind, sure. you know, uh, just because they'll, they'll drop in there and they'll follow them in and ducks will follow anything in, you know, like mm-hmm. that. So, but if you get that 50 yard thing, you know, you want to have decoys out that far. You know, and a you know a fairly good bulk of them, uh, depending on how you're setting up, but it, it'll save you a lot of time. One of the biggest things that we take for granted, and as much as we hunt, is instructional. And I'm sitting here learning, like, yeah, that, that's good. I've never thought about the 50 yard rule and putting your decoys out there and or stakes and markers. Depending on the laws of leaving decoys in the ground or in the field overnight, you got to make sure another law because in some places you can't do it, right. some places you can. Oh, so, I'm just talking about putting the stake. Oh, the stake out, the stake. Okay, and then, then you walk the 50 yards off from the stake. Put the another stake out first thing but at least you have that visual in your headlamp of seeing that orange top of that stake that decoy stake right yeah it's just it's so easy to get get away from the fact that we do get to do this a lot and we've learned i'm learning right now from a master that's done it for a lot longer than i have and i think that it's that we take it for granted that there are a lot of these people that are out there doing it another way to get them more involved and get them into it more is to breed more success and to breed more success, breed more instruction and give them more to learn from. Like there's got to be more guys that have the voice or have the ability to get thought and they might not work every time. And you don't have to stick with just one ideology. You can take a couple of R's or a couple of of Zinks or a couple of John Stevens and Jimbo's or whoever and say, all right, well, at least I have an idea of what's worked for these guys before. So try different things, different days. You know, your side shooting thing was awesome. Um, In Kansas, I can set a panel blind up in a tree row of trees that are 60 yards high and decoy lessers like there's no tomorrow. You do that in another state and you're, the lessers will look at you like you're, what are you thinking? Yeah. We're not coming in there, right? You're not, we're not going into that spread, but in Kansas it works. So there's just so many little hints and tips that we could give to people and we want to get from people too. So that might be something that we need to start concentrating on the more we get in the field together is those kind of tips are, are gold to people. Sure. They're gold. And I take it for granted all the time. Like, well, if I can do it, I know you can do it. And that's not the case because I get to go with a lot of different people that I've learned from and I've picked up on some things and now it's my job to say, Hey, you know, I, I'm not perfect at it, but this worked for me. It's not about like, well, yeah, I don't want to teach you what I did here. No, you know, it's, it's not, not, it's, it's not, not like you taught me the importance of a jerk rig 18 years ago. And to this day, I won't, when I, when I forget one, I literally want to quit hunting. If I'm on water and I don't have a jerk rig, whether it's windy for a little bit or not, I know. the wind's going to die down. And when that water goes to cement, I look, I just want to go, Oh, yeah. What was I thinking? Where's my jerk rig? Where, where, what am I thinking? So, and we use that, you know, that auto jerk and you don't want to mechanize things. But again, I put that in there and I, and I, and I have that battery operated deal and it's shaking my decoys, creating ripples and chocolate milk effect. And that's another tip that I learned from Jim Ronquest a long time ago is what chocolate milk effect meant for ducks. And I've never forgotten it. And it's been 15 years since he taught me it. And I think that instruction is taken for granted with us to where 
we have a lot of knowledge, I think, not in an arrogant way, but we've, we're out there doing it a lot. And what you just said two times today about side shooting them and, and you setting those stakes early in the night before on your scout and letting the birds get out of there, it makes total sense. And, and if more people did that, they wouldn't, get, they wouldn't lose their way in the morning, and I lose my way a lot. It's, it's so easy to do. You think, way easy. You know, you're, I've sat there on 100 fields and gone, okay, so it's going to be the second roll of the hill. When I get to that, I'm going to know where I am. It doesn't look like a roll. You don't even know you're going up. I've laid the blinds down before and, and then finally thought to go lay in one and realized I got them laying with your head lower than your feet because it doesn't look like that in the morning. No. You know? So, you, you, yeah. One thing that I started doing this year, and I got this hint from another guide, from a hunter, um, on a hunt was was uh, marking your location on your maps when you're when you're like where you want to hunt. That doesn't mean that you don't go put your stakes out like you're saying still. Mm -hmm. But now with technology, you can go on your phone and mark your location, and hopefully your satellites are lined up and it's right. Right. But it's so easy to get lost in Canada because it is so big. It is so freaking big. And I get lost in a little, you know, 40-acre cornfield in Kansas with tree lines on both sides where I should be able to find my landmarks. In Kansas, right. you, you go, well, there's that, there, you know, there's that embankment. There's that pond. No, that's a totally different pond than the one we saw. It's, it's amazing how many mistakes can be made in the dark, right. which is a lot of the times you're setting up in early season Canada. You're waiting for the sun to come up because those birds are eating when it's pretty warm out before right. the cold temperatures come. What about your, your thought on, and I know I've kept you forever today, but what about your thought on the vocalizations in Canada meaning you you're you have a lot of opportunity you have the you have your decoy spread you're in the x you've been scouting do you call just because you want to make noise and that you think you sound good and that you that you want to be part of the hunt or do you think that it actually is adding another element of success or another element of realism to that hunt to where now those ducks are like, man, you know, I haven't been off the tundra that long, but that's what mom and dad sounded like. And that's what I, that's what I want to hear. I think, I think sometimes we call just because we can, you know, and, and you know, those birds are coming in. You can just see how they look. You can, you can see their body attitude and their, you know, they're coming in. But it feels good to blow the call and, you know, give them a little feed and chatter or whatever, like they care, but, and they come on in. But what the, the, the key to the whole thing is, is, and you know, you're right. We've gotten to hunt with some amazing people in our lives. And like Jim Ronquist is, is amazing at reading birds, you know, amazing. I mean, he'll see them over a half a mile away and he goes, those birds will work. You know, we just got to let them hear us. They'll, they'll come in and then he'll see some others and not even pick his call up, you know, and you start looking at that and everything. And so to get back to your question, same thing happens in Canada and, and, you know, you can coax them a little, you can, you can lead them right in. You can really tell young birds from old birds pretty, pretty quickly with ducks because the ducks will come. Um, the, the geese are different. I think, I think there takes a lot more reading with the geese. Um, you know, the speckled bellies are usually pretty easy to kill this year. They were tough because there weren't a whole lot of young birds, very similar to the snow geese. Um, and the lessers too, the geese just had a, from, from my perspective the part of the migration I saw in Alberta this year, there weren't a lot of young birds of any of those three, you know, snow specks or the lessers. Consequently, they're harder to hunt. Um, uh, you know, so I think the vocalizations, what the hardest thing to do is remember what worked. You know, 
when you hit a couple of notes and that lead spec just banks and here he comes in, you need to remember those notes because <laughs> they'll work again and again and again and again, you know. Um, the lessers, uh, the same thing is true with them. Uh, I think calling snow geese is whatever, you know. If you got the lungs for it, go for it. <laughs> they make electronic callers. For the spring, yeah, yeah. for a reason. Well, no, no, you can use them all year. In oh, in Canada you can yeah, do. Yeah, 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 I forgot. Sure. But uh, um, I would use those. Oh, I do. I do. You know, and you can just turn it off. But sometimes I really do ask myself, I can, I mean, I, I'm not saying that I'm the best again. I'm not saying that, but I've gotten to the point now to where I could look at somebody and go, I mean, I looked, did it several times in South Dakota. We ain't going to kill them here. Not being negative, nope. but just seeing it and not having my finger on it enough on the scout or the, or the lead up to that hunt to where when I finally get in there, I look at it and went, and it always comes across as a dick move, right? To say, to be that guy that says, you ain't going to kill him here because all of a sudden it's, oh, you're the pessimistic. No, I'm not naked. I'm just telling you. Right. It's not the right. I've seen this before. I've seen this before right. And I know what ducks are going to do now. We, we will kill three or four of them out of 15,000, but the majority of them are going to do this. And then at the end of the day, two people walk up to me and go, and I'm not kidding you. They walked up to me and go, and they used an F, a, a, a cuss word that starts with an F when they said this, but they go, how in the, did you know that? And the next question out of their mouth is, why didn't you make us leave? And I go, because there's only so much I can be a dick about. There's only so much that I can say or try to get the hint out there that, hey, this isn't where we need to be. This isn't right. Something's not, you know, this isn't going to pay off for us. Mm -hmm. As a duck hunter, you got to know when to call Adam or when to call the hunt and say, hey, we got to adapt and go to do this. Because if wait, I've wasted days in the field where I could have went and either got other work done or I could have went and get, found another field to get on for the afternoon. If you if you start to create, you know, start to develop those instincts and that thought process as a duck hunter, you're going to get better at it. And you're going to be able to say, no, it's not right today, guys. It's not the right time to hunt this spot. Right. The wind, it's not right. Let's just make, let's just cut our losses and let's go do, let's not waste this area because there are a lot of fresh ducks or geese in the area. Let's cut our losses and go use this day to scout and put some miles on the track. No matter how bloodthirsty you are, no matter how much rush you need to knock off that Benelli in that black cloud, no matter how much you think you need to pull that trigger, sometimes it's better just to wait for the right opportunity. It, it, I couldn't agree with you more. And you know, the, the, in in Nevada or in Montana or in Alberta or in Arkansas or wherever, you know, scouting is huge and it's a lot, you know, it, it's hard to do exactly what you just said. It's hard to call a hunt and go, you know, we need to spend the, spend the rest of the day finding a better spot to hunt, you know, for tomorrow or yeah. the next day or whatever it is. Um, that's that's a tough thing to do, um, but but it's the right thing to do, and, and and I know exactly what you mean. I've been in that position where, you know, I watch the birds go into this field for a few days, whatever, and you're set up in the morning. The wind is 180 degrees from how it's been the last two days. The first bunch of birds goes by the corner of the field three quarters of a mile from you, and you go, that didn't happen exactly. the last two days. That's exactly what I saw there. And if the second bunch does that, done. You look at these guys and you know it's going to crush their day if you go, let's pick them up. I mean, they've been laying there for 15 minutes, literally. Yeah. So you don't, and you kill six or 10 instead of 32 or 40. Looking like the world's worst duck hunter again. <laughs> and, and the first thing they say is, call Adam. And I'm like, no, no, no I'm not going to call Adam. <laughs> I have a limited amount of breath here. <laughs> no, I'm not wasting it. I have, it I have asthma. I have mild, I'm a mild asthmatic. And <laughs> I don't have my puffer with me right now. But, but that's what I was seeing is that you've experienced it too. And I didn't, it's almost like, it's almost like being the boss. Sometimes you got to say, no, it ain't happening today. You're not getting the day off. We're not hunting here today. It's not right. And right. you don't want to crash somebody's party because they only have 
so many days to hunt. That's right. Which you have to keep that in mind too. But in, you know, I want to have the mindset that you do want to make the best out of it. But always remember this: in the morning, and you tell me if I'm wrong, in a duck hunt. When the ducks come off of that roost, okay, you're not going to be in an area 90% of your hunts in Canada or America to where you're going to have millions of ducks that you're going to see that day. In Canada, you are going to get more opportunities, but sooner or later, tell me if I'm wrong, Dave, that morning flight's going to end. Okay, it ends. Now, it's, if it's windy, it's going to last a little bit longer. You might get a few more opportunities. If it's cold, they're going to, some of the birds will stay on the roost more, but you're also going to get colder sitting out there waiting on them. You got to keep all this in mind when you're thinking about how long you should hunt and what you're really hunting for. It doesn't make sense to stay there. If you could go find a field that morning you could get up from that hunt and say oh shit they're going in here today and then go get the permission from that landowner on your map or your phone or your app like we use base map right now and it works wonders mm-hmm. boom you're up you're set up by three o'clock now they come off for another 60 minutes or 70 minutes in the afternoon and you shoot five limits and you're in the right spot and it happens that fast right that's right because sooner you just because you don't get them in the morning doesn't mean your day's over you can go get a good scout and 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 i just want people to keep that in mind is that don't be afraid to say hey we we, we made a mistake we, we're not in the right spot it's not going to work today sure. and i can tell 90 percent of the time by the way the first flock reacts and a lot of people are like oh belding like, you, I, I don't i don't, don't want to be that guy dave that goes we need to change the spread. We need to change the spread. No, I saw him a mile out there. I know that this isn't right. The right apparatus, the right uh, time to be in this field or this hunt right now. And I know that guys out there are going to say, you're crazy. You can't tell that, but you really can. The more you get ingrained in this. So here's what I wanted to say. You haven't touched what I'm about to hand you. And I've been working on this little deal here for a little bit. There's no, I don't want there no need to say a name or a brand or anything, but I just want to hand you this duck call. And I want you to, face that way a little bit away from the microphone a little bit and i just want you to throw some sounds into it of what you do and i just want your honest opinion are we on to something with this deal does it sound good to you i don't want any promotion i don't want anything i just want your your opinion of of this call okay first of all it's kind of beautiful right it is look at that black is beautiful So you've never blown this call i just want your honest opinion on it just first out of the box i just i just got them finalized Put your headphones on first. Yeah, that'll do it. Do you like it? Yeah, a lot. Doesn't it run good? It does. Here, not done yet. One more. This really this, this is the smaller bore call. call. Okay. No names needed. I just wanted to get your honest opinion before you leave today. All right. Try not to knock anything out. This is Chad Belding with another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody. I know I haven't mentioned that, but I got excited to talk to my good friend and mentor, Dave Stanley, again about this wonderful lifestyle of duck calling and what we're in duck hunting and duck camp and everything that goes into it. And right now, he's just giving me his honest feedback on a couple of these new call designs that we're getting ready to announce and launch to the world. Wow, a lot of different duck in there. That's you like it? Really nice. The Prom- you promise? And they're easy to blow. That's, you promise you like them? I really do. Yeah. I don't take any credit for the design on them. Those are 
um, from my good buddy that's been putting those together. But I mean, I'm happy with them. Yeah. They're, they're really good, aren't they? They are really good. Like I blew, like I got them in the mail on Saturday finally. And I went, I had that bar, that dinner you were here and I didn't want to bring them out cause I knew what it would have turned into with right. us. And, uh, so then I wanted to make sure that I let you hit them today and just see what you thought. Man, those are nice. I like that. I'll be getting you some. All right. <laughs> so good. you guys, uh, Dave Stanley, you guys check him out. Fly fishing, duck hunting, waterfowl hunting. We've always called him the Renaissance man of the outdoors. He's taught us a ton uh, and, and uh, everything he's done for us as well as our family, his family. We're all great friends. And after all these years, we still get together and talk about duck and blow duck calls and cook duck and eat duck and drink a beer or a cocktail and have the biggest smiles on our faces knowing that for the rest of our lives we get to share time in the great outdoors and that's what this lifestyle is all about so dave you got any closing words no thank you very much buddy i uh, i don't know anybody who works harder at their uh, love than you do and uh I'm glad you let me be a part of it every now and then. Shit, I'd love you to be here all the time. Maybe now that you're uh, getting into that stage of what you call retirement, which I don't <laughs> think you're ever going to retire, you'll be on the road with me more. But you can't give up the canvas back. That makes it tough. But that's the, that's the heart of a duck hunter, guys. If you get a chance, Google Dave Stanley and just look at some of the things he's done. His brother, Alan, his son, John David, his daughter, Katie, every single one of them are heart, you know, just salt-of-the-earth people with huge hearts, and they would drop everything they're doing to come help you change a tire if you don't know how to, which I, I know how to. Just taught myself how to finally change a tire this age of my life but again this life ain't for everybody thank you so much for the support brand new episodes of the foul life season 10 airing now exclusively on the outdoor channel awesome new foul life and this life ain't for everybody merchandise available in our online store the podcast continues to grow a lot of momentum right now and we're also on the road filming for season 11 of the foul life as well as our new youtube channel this life ain't for everybody we have benelli shotgun blues up there traeger smoke show real tree spurring a lot of cool content we're fired up we're excited about it we can't wait for this season to get more mature and uh it's 75 degrees in in reno today and it's supposed to start cooling down so we're hoping for it we're going to be watching the forecast i hope your season has started off with a bang if you guys have any questions contact us info at the i'm chad belding for dave stanley this life ain't for everybody podcast thank you so much my main man tom rashachuk would you please play us out with that leith lofton ballad what you gonna do when the money's all gone thank you What you gonna do when the money's all gone?